ho, ho. Welcome to the party. Bang, bang. Uh, today we have a guest episode yet again. Uh, this man uh, went to high school with me. He's a muso. Um, he was into the guitar, I believe, when, when we were in high school together. He still plays it now. He uh, is a jack of all trades, though, and uh, has made a career out of music. Um, and I just keep finding more and more successful people out of little old Adelaide. I know it's fun for people in other cities and even in Adelaide to, to shit on Adelaide, but... Um, man, there's, there's people, there's people coming out of here doing big things. Um, whether, whether they are in industries like, you know, entertainment or, uh, doing marketing or accounting or whatever they're doing. There's people, there's people in Adelaide, uh, that have come out and they're on top of their games. Uh, and this is just one of them. So, uh, listen up and get, get, uh, get familiar with Dusty Lee Stevenson. Call in all your favors, piss off all your neighbors, yeah, somehow. Still you have a way with the heartstrings playing oh so gently each time around. stoppers i guess but you can get this curved one that like sits behind a microphone like this yeah so it just prevents all the reflections from behind the mic which yeah. is when you get a lot of that room yeah. sound if you want more of like a dead close which i need because you just heard that plane that just yeah that, that happens um and i always i always complain about it and then i'll listen to it back <laughs> and you won't hear it though yeah <laughs> so it's just me like it's complaining about something that's non-existent to the listeners <laughs> Yeah, I had that. I was living in Mile End and that fly just over. Yeah. It sounds like they're landing on the roof. Yeah, thank um, you. But, yeah, so what's... what Like, where was, where's your next gig? Like, oh, no, okay, tour, tour. When's tour. the next tour coming up? Where do we start? We start there. Um, in a few weeks, end of April. And that's, Is this, have we started or yeah, we just, Yeah, we're on. Oh, we're on, cool, right yeah. on. Mike Marin styles. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. You're gonna have some like like a whole bunch of like ads and discussions and like uh, intro before all this. Um, there'll be an intro, no ads yet. One day. Yes. Yeah, sweet. Right on. Um, tour. Yeah, we're touring. And that's towns. Is a uh, that's not. No, I don't know when that is. I just know that recently our manager said we're going to Townsville. Yeah. And uh, I had to Google it because I knew like it's one of those. But I've heard the name Townsville heaps times, but I just didn't know quite where it was situated. Mm. So yeah, but it's cool that you live there for a bit. Yeah, it's um, like, I don't know what time of year. Oh, you're not sure when you're going, but hot and uh, humid. And um, <clears throat> my my car was like, you know, five meters away from the front door and I would just, I'd walk to the car and be sweating already before having to <laughs> practice and shit. So Gross. yeah, it's pretty foul. And you were playing basketball up there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just for... I hope they had air conditioning in the... 
Oh yeah, but yeah. there was there was days that it wasn't wasn't on or um, wasn't working. I can relate to that with some venues. You play on stage and they've got the old school hot lights, the halogen things. That, yeah. I mean, nowadays it's all LED. Yeah. But if you go into these kind of outdated venues that haven't upgraded their shit, then they've got lights that are just basically heaters. Yeah. And then they don't have good ventilation and it's just after 45 minutes up there, you're just dying. A lot of comedians talk about, because they do old venues quite a lot, so they, mm. they talk about how fucking hot it is and you see like guys that sweat a lot, they've always got like a towel on the, um, yeah. the stool and stuff because, yeah, it's just so hot up there. Yeah. Um... All right, so Brighton, that's where that's where I first heard of slash met you, uh, Brighton High School. Good old days. Um, and you were you were heavy into music at that at that point. Were you? When did you first pick up a guitar or drumsticks or whatever? Um, I, know, I was like six, I think. My parents bought me a three little three quarter guitar, and I was like, I used to stand in front of the mirror and like hold it the wrong way because I'm a left hander actually. Hendrix. Yeah, so I would hold it that way. Yeah. Upside down, and just kind of bash away in front of the mirror. But the parent, the, the guitar that actually bought me was a was a right-handed guitar. Yeah. And I went to guitar lessons. They sent me. I was I grew up in Odinga down south. Okay. And I was going to Odinga Primary School, and they had a guitar teacher there, and they sent me to him, and he was like, "Either your parents have to buy you another guitar, or you got to flip it over and learn how to play it right-handed." Uh, and he said, "I reckon because you haven't started playing yet, you should try." and do it right-handed because mm-hmm. it'll make your life a lot easier. That was the best thing that ever happened to me was him doing that because if I was a left-handed guitarist, that'd be a nightmare. You can't like rock up to a party and just pick up a guitar or whatever. There's always got to, you've always got to have your instrument with you everywhere you go. Yeah. Yeah. Most guitars are right-handed guitars. Didn't they say that, um, Hendrix used to just restring right-handed guitars? Yeah. He, yeah. That, that's one way of doing it. But, um, yeah, this I've, I agree with what this guy said just because you can if you learn that coordination then you can use it to your advantage too because then all of a sudden your like dominant hand is on the fretboard right. instead of um, yeah the picking side so which is kind of handy I don't know I think it makes a difference there's a few guitarists that are like that but yeah anyway so I did that and started playing guitar flipped it over started learning some stuff are you one some of the drum kit. musicians that can sort of like play a bit of everything yeah yeah I think it's because like, I got a drum kit when I was 10 or something and would just always bash it away. I had a granny flat out the back of my house, which is what led to the band name. Oh, the granny flats. Group. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how are they doing? Morphe and uh, Camilla, was it? Yeah. Oh, man. Follow Camilla on Instagram. It's Camilla Bass Killer, I think. Yeah. She's like sponsored by Nike and she recently she was like in London and there was big pictures of her and all of the tubes because they did a thing on empowering women in music. Wow. They assembled a band, you know, like a drummer, a singer, guitarist. And she was the bass player of the band that they assembled. Um, yeah, for, I'm pretty sure it was Nike. Does she live over there? No, she lives in LA, I think. Yeah. I don't quote me on that, <laughs> but she went to Berkeley. She First she got into the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. From there she got into Berkeley. Then she ended up playing bass for Tina Arena and she plays, yeah, so she still plays for Tina when she tours um, Veronica's every now and then. But just the other day she put up a video. She was playing on stage in Hawaii in front of 5,000 people, standing right in front of her. So the camera was behind her, standing right in front of her was Jack Johnson. To her left on the drums was Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac. 
to the right of Jack Johnson was Steven Tyler. Oh my god. And then the camera pans around to the right and standing right next to her, turning around looking right at her with a massive smile in his face, was Willie fucking Nelson. Oh my god. So she's just like and there it was I think they did this benefit concert in Hawaii and there was just um yeah, for some reason she was playing bass for the gig and that was the big finale as they all played Come Together by the Beatles and it was just all of them on stage at once but she wasn't like a museo in the background like she was yeah. like right up there with them that's unreal and they adore her little old Adelaide yeah man and but the interesting thing is once people kind of get out of here and go and do their thing like you just kind of stop hearing about them unless yeah. unless you keep up with them personally like it's it's another friend's band of mine happened with too like they're huge over in the states they're pretty high up the lineups on festivals like Lollapalooza and yeah you know big big deal they've been on Letterman Fallon like Kimmel all that shit wow and you you don't even no one even knows their name here they're called Atlas Genius and they used to have a cover band around here called Harry Lemon and they would play at the bloody Holdy and the Lion and all stuff like that but yeah like whenever band, you know they talk about successful artists uh, coming out of Adelaide that they get proud of that you see newspaper articles about and blogs post about and all that sort of thing they're always the ones that are doing well in Australia mm. but you never hear about the people that are smashing it overseas yeah and I, I don't understand why because I think um, I think it's like you know good on anyone who can get out and actually make a name for themselves somewhere else where yeah no one knew who the fuck they were yeah it's like um, I guess it's maybe overcompensation trying to build um, the people up who are here to help them get out and then once once they're out it's sort of like okay well you, you've made it fun <laughs> on to the next one it could be that that's that's a good positive way of looking at it um, or it could just be that like they're like well screw you if you know if you're not gonna if you're not gonna do which it in is, Australia and, yeah. yeah which is like an easy easy way for it to be and I feel like it all like it most likely is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it's just that people just don't think about that shit as much. And people, maybe some Australians um, in the industry just aren't actually really... I feel like it sometimes, because I'm pretty in the crux of what's going on in, in this country, in the music industry. And it's like, sometimes I feel like, you know, certain parts of the industry are pretty out of touch with what's actually going on overseas and, you know, what's happening. So it's easy to lose track of people who have grown up here and then have gone over to do massive things. Yeah, we've got some Adelaide people just like smashing it all over the world. Yeah. Joe Lowry is an Adelaide singer who sings backing vocals for Sting all over the world. Wow. She went to like the, the con in the city. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's like even Ben Harrison, he was the year above us at Brighton. You might not know who he was. He was like a turbo music guy, multi-instrumentalist. He's now like the MD, the musical director of the new... Cirque du Soleil show over in I don't know Europe or America oh. or something he's been working with M83 who's What's like that? a he's a massive electronic music producer okay like huge oh okay M83 is one of those like guru Mr. Miyagi guys but yeah so they're doing an M83 Cirque du Soleil collaboration and Ben Harrison who was the year above us at our high school I know the name for sure the guy who's like MDing the whole thing and like arranging it all and wow. you know, pulling it all together the music and all that sort of stuff and and then another guy Ben Todd who went to Marriottville same year is also co doing that with those guys and it's like but they're on the other side of the world and they're yeah. being relied on for this massive show that's going to tour internationally and yeah. they're kind of pulling all of the music together for it yeah collaborating with one of the biggest electronic music producers so yeah anyway there's some 
there's some good stuff going on people just don't hear about it yeah did you so growing up down south did you get into surfing or anything like that at all as well or no when i was a kid as much i think my parents were always petrified of sharks i mean they were just massive worry warts yeah. even you know i would run into the waves and you know do a flip over the wave and then dad would come out and be like don't do that you break your neck you know i heard some story about someone who broke their neck yeah. you know it's like <laughs> like when you lean back on your chair in school yeah, and they're like so, oh. I'd make, so then i'd make sure yeah exactly that sort of thing so i make sure whenever i'd go to boomer beach and like pull into some massive closeouts and like flip down the front of like a five foot you know what it's like down there yeah they're ridiculous and I always make sure that someone would get a photo of it and I send it to my dad. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, people break their necks here, dad. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yeah, um, but um, yeah, so I know they were always saying, don't go out too far, like you, it's basically like you'll definitely be eaten by a shark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, me and I started going to Port Elliot with, do you remember Ty, Ty and Swan? Yes, yes. Blonde guy. Yeah, so we all had a group, it was like me, him and Josh Morfitt and... Um, Tommy Red and all, all that sort of my crew from high school we'd always go down there in the summer and Ty started taking us out surfing but he was always a few steps ahead you know we just wanted to kind of start to learn to stand up and paddle into some like two foot waves and whatever yeah and he's out there trying to charge eight foot barrels and yeah <laughs> he would wait till like a stormy day like onshore winds you know crazy currents big rips take us out to Waipingo and be like have fun boys like just like we'll just be out there and you're out there and it's just like bombies it's like now you got to go in um but yeah it was cool because he kind of chucked us into the deep end so we did get we learned how to get around it yeah like pretty quickly yeah 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 so a few york's trips and that sort of thing you know i wouldn't call myself like a surfer per se but yeah when i get out there i can i can get around it yeah have a bit of fun not just like yeah like I don't just go straight down a face and just like fall off a board yeah <laughs> like I, I go across and do some things you know but I'm not like jumping out the top and you know getting massive barrels or anything like that but yeah I do need to get back into it because it's really good cardio and I suck at going to gyms I'm now that I don't play basketball anymore I'm just like I'm so worthless with gym like <laughs> it's just hard there's not moti- there's no motivation there for me it's just like I don't know. There's like the smell and this like the music they play. Oh. Yeah. It's just like, not. I don't know. Like some people, like it's, it's the culture now. Like people love it, yeah. but I, I just have no fun there. I'd rather do an activity like, like, yeah, like surfing. I don't surf, but, um, playing basketball was my main force of, uh, my main, um, form of. Well, that's like intense cardio. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and like, yeah, through high school, you've like footy and stuff like that. It's just easy to stay fit. And then, just now I'm noticing how hard it is to stay fit without playing competitive sport. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. When you're younger, you do so much stuff yeah. all the time. That's just like everything you're doing is, you know, even if you're just like hanging out with mates at a party, you just run up a tree or jump over yeah. the fence or do something stupid. Like it's always... Energy. Energy. And then yeah. it's like these days, it's just like you sit on your ass and just... Like what we're doing now, essentially. Yeah. Come home from work yeah. and like, all you feel like doing is just chilling. Like Talk some shit, watch some Netflix, yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's, and, and in music, um, as much as we've come off stage sweating, sweating a lot and uh, we've put out a lot of energy, it's, it's not quite a cardio workout, yeah. jumping around a stage with your guitar. But you end up sore as fuck, which sucks because like, you don't get fitter. I guess you, you would in certain ways, but you know it's not going to like shred any fat yeah, off your stomach yeah, or anything just like but you end, up, you end up really sore so like it's like 
it's like you get the soreness from a workout but without the actual benefits yeah like, without the results yeah. so you end up with like hunched over with like your neck hurting and like holding a guitar and stuff and so you're in a band at the moment yeah I got a band called Wanderers Wanderers and um, we just released a single last week oh what's that called off my back off my back I can't stop loving everybody Adelaide based yeah yeah it's um yeah there's like a bit of an ancestral kind of scene here here in Adelaide and we're all these um bands and we kind of share musos every now and then yeah. so it's like my rhythm section is my friend Matt and we've got a guy Malush and Logan on keyboards um Logan was friends with me during high school as well but he didn't go to Brighton but yeah he's old school yeah but so they're also they're also in another band called Timberwolf and he yeah he does pretty well feel like it's I've really, heard that name yeah he's like a I guess a, a fairly on the J's and that sort of stuff okay does a lot of touring yeah so I don't know we're giving it doing the grind yeah and soul music um so how how do you guys go about about um practicing all of that how how often are you guys practicing oh it's just touring really yeah touring's the best practice you like jam <laughs> we like have one hit before a tour and we kind of roughly get the set together sometimes we'll go back and because we'll, we've released two EPs and we've now got another 40 songs recorded and we're slowly turning it into an album so sometimes we will write new songs and then start touring and then we'll do the new songs on tour and so at the start of the tour they'll be pretty shaky by the end of the tour they'll be really tight yeah um and then sometimes we just reassess and like, you know, go back and do old songs that we haven't done in ages. And so, yeah, when we have to do that sort of thing, we rehearse and then we rehearse some of the set. But generally songs you've been playing for ages, you don't really have to go back and rehearse. But yeah, there's some bands that do rehearse the same set every week, no matter what. You know, even the Stones, when they came to Adelaide, they booked out a rehearsal room mm-hmm. for a week before their two stadium shows that they did and they would have just been playing Brown Sugar and like all the all the old classic shit they've been playing for 50 years but but it's cool I mean you still got to do it it's important to stay match fit I would say that they they've probably been playing it for so long that when they're not playing they're really not playing and so they true it's probably good for them to get a tune up yeah like when they when they're gonna embark on a tour I guess they've got to yeah yeah plus when you're the Stones and you've got to, that would be such like, almost part of it would also be um, getting the fitness levels back up too. I imagine in the rehearsals that Mick Jagger would be like running around the room like a madman. Yeah. I saw them, I saw them at Adelaide Oval and he was just like, I was like, I can't do that. I could not do. I've never seen him, but I've heard that, yeah, it's like amazing that he's doing what he's doing at his age. I'd kill over halfway through the show and just yeah. vomiting. I couldn't keep up. I don't know many people that could. It's, yeah. It was, it was insane. It was like two and a half hours nonstop. This seventy whatever year old. Yeah, yeah probably I mean, yeah. The like adrenaline. Five or I don't even know. But what's the biggest crowd you've played in front of? Um, we played to thirty thousand people on New Year's Eve. That uh, falls. Nah. Oh, I did. <laughs> that was a hectic few days, man. So I was. I started telling you the story before, but I'll complete it because there's. Yeah, it continues. But yeah, I had that. I had a gig. 
just a soul crushing cover gig on a, at the casino um, the night before New Year's Eve and then it finished at midnight no it finished at 1am and I had, I had to perform at 11.30am in Lawn at Falls and obviously you can't just like get on a plane to Melbourne and then like get a hire car that yeah it would it would too much of a fuck around so I hired a car which I got earlier that day then did my casino gig then straight afterwards I got in that car and drove overnight straight to Falls in Lawn I got there at like quarter past 11 ran in to wow. this gig and then like you know set up my tent and had a snooze for a little bit and then I went on to party a bit and saw bloody Liam Gallagher and everyone who played and it was it was awesome the next morning Drive to Melbourne airport, um, pretty hungover, fly home to Adelaide, sound check at Elder Park, and then that night we played to 30,000 people. And it's just like, just a whirlwind three days. It was yeah. just pretty hectic. Um, but yeah, I got through. I passed out at the end of it. I was just, it was too much, but... <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I, I tend to do that. I tend to overload and just try and do everything. Um, yeah, you get through the other end. Yeah. So, okay, so what's your best show? Because I was talking to, do you know Paul Cranenberg from Yeah, Brian? I saw him when I think last time I saw you, I think maybe Mosley Beach Club. Yeah, he so he, he said that he's played to some pretty big crowds, but one of, he'd say his best gig was is ba- more based on an- the energy of the crowd. So yeah. um, I forgot what it was called, but someplace in Sydney, it was like small sort of, he said like undergroundish sort sure. of um, club-like uh, electric circus in Adelaide. Yeah. Um, forgot what it was called, but he said that was probably his best gig. Um, what what would your best gig be? <clears throat> it's hard to say, but I, I understand that concept because it's the same for us. I mean, he's playing to, in completely different style venues to completely different types of people yeah. than us, but it's still the same in the way that we can go, like say a gig, like on the weekend we played at Blenheim Fest, up in Clare Valley. Oh, okay. And so, you know, we would have played to, I don't know, 800 people or something for our set, and it was really cool. But, you know, everyone's, like, mellow, and they're kind of sitting down, and there wasn't heaps of interaction. It was still a really nice gig, and they were really um, a really pleasant crowd. But, you know, like, you've got to rush on, and you've got to do it, and there's, like, sound problems, and it's a festival. So even though those gigs are, like, uh, fun for the size of the crowd and for the people that are hanging around and for the environment. Sometimes it's not as fun as just going to like a country venue somewhere, somewhere in rural New South Wales and, and just doing your own gig, playing to 50 people and <clears throat> using all your own equipment and just like, yeah, just having like an intimate kind of thing. Like you can, in between songs, you can just talk to the people in the crowd, not even on the microphone, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. Banter and like funny shit and, you just like change the set to suit the vibe, or whatever. You just kind of go with the flow. This is festivals are a bit more. You've got forty five minutes. Don't go a second over. Yeah. Or we'll be annoyed. Mm-hmm. It's like we played a minute over at Blenheim, and we heard about. It. I mean, they were they were cool about it, but they made sure they mentioned it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were they were like, oh, you know what, a minute's fine. But if it started to get any more, it would have been uh, frustrating because it's like we finish and then there's a band on the stage, the other stage. Yeah. So you kind of it's got to flow. Yeah, okay. But yeah, some some are more casual than others, but my favourite thing about it, I think, is going to places that I didn't even know existed in Australia, you know? Yeah. Like, we went we went and played a show in a place called Bellingen. Yeah, never heard of it. 
Yeah, right. It's in rural New South Wales. It's kind of like half an hour out of Coffs Harbour. Yep. And um, there's this place there called, I think it's called the Promised Land. And it's like um, just this like river through a rainforest kind of area that just stretches forever. And you go there and it's just like surreal. It's like something out of, um, I don't even know, like out of a scene out of Lord of the Rings or something oh, right. like, where there's like, you know, the elves like <laughs> dipping their beautiful faces in the water and all that shit. But yeah, you go down this area and it's just like, I know the people that live there are like successful hippies and um, people are just swimming in this awesome thing, like sw- swinging off the trees and doing all this cool shit. Cheers. And then Bellingen, the actual, um, the actual town where the venue we played is, it's just cool, man. I don't know. It's like kind of hard to describe. It's like Byron Bay, but like substantially smaller and like more mellow. Um, right. But it's like rural, so it's not a beach place, but there's this culture of um, like fishing nearby and all this other sort of stuff. And everybody out there seems to have their own successful businesses. They're all kind of entrepreneurs and stuff. Okay. But yeah, that's cool. So we'll go there. And then like a few weeks before that, we're on King Island, which is in between Melbourne and Tasmania. And I had no idea that there was an island in between Melbourne and Tasmania. Apparently it's sick. It's awesome. Yeah. It's really freaking cool. And they had a festival called Festival of King Island. And, Fair um, enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not too original there, but it was cool, man. We just like, part of the deal was that we played the festival for two days and then I think, you know, the money wasn't, we hadn't organized for heaps of cash or anything. It was kind of part of the deal was stay on our island for four days. We'll give you a Hilux oh, and, cool. and a place to stay. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you guys want some surfboards or if you want to do whatever, just let us know. And so, yeah, we had the first two days we had to perform at this festival and then we were still there for another two days afterwards. Yeah. Just, just on this island with no phone signal and it's 45 minutes from one end to the other. They've got like the fourth best golf course in the world or something like just random shit yeah wow that you don't even hear it's like on the edge of a cliff overlooking the they got amazing waves they got like forests that you can hike through they've got all this cool shit um and this like fishing culture where they instead when they need to get abalone and crayfish they don't even have to put on a scuba apparatus they just jump off the edge of the jetty and just like go down two meters and like start pulling up wow <laughs> yeah man that's so, like, the backstage food for this festival was just, like, crayfish. And yeah, or <laughs> anywhere else in the world oh, would be, like, absolute... Each um, bite, you're going, like, that's 10 bucks. Yeah, that's yeah. That's 10 bucks. <laughs> Dipping it in, like, the tartar, like, locally made tartar sauce. I mean, and they've got the best cheese over there, too. King Island cheese, you can buy it anywhere. Right. And it's, you know, a wheel of that at Central Market, say, it's probably, like, 40, 30, 40 bucks. Yeah. There, they were just handing it out, like, currency. That's was, unreal. When we left, they, um... They had like the closing festival, the, uh, the closing kind of party of the festival at this little bizarre hut owned by this kooky artistic lady. And there was like these Barbies with their like heads ripped off, like hanging around. But this was like a little fishing hut next to it. Like this little bay. It was like a really weird vibe, but it was cool. And then the the guy, the owner of King Island Cheese came out. He's like, I've got some cheese for everyone. And you know, he had all these like bags, like zip bags full of cheese. 
and I thought we'd just get one for the whole band. Yeah. You know, because it was heaps of cheese in this Yeah. <laughs> but it was one per member. Right. And after this, we had to fly to Melbourne, and then, you know, we had to, we had another run of shows, so everywhere we went, we were carrying around all this fucking cheese, <laughs> and so whatever Airbnb or whatever we were staying, we had to, like, put it in the fridge, and... Yeah. But then we'd have, like, an eight-hour drive, and we'd be, like putting ice in the, the zip bags because this cheese was incredible I think yeah. I ended up just giving it all to my brother in Melbourne just because I was like I can't be bothered yeah like trying to protect it we must have had $200 worth of cheese each that's wild you know in these bags yeah but over there it's like $8 for a wheel of amazing camembert yeah but yeah man it's just like I didn't even know that place existed and I've spent four days there and I'd go back there anytime yeah it's technically part of Tasmania actually okay and we had to fly in a small plane to get there. Yeah, that's a little right. propeller plane. Yeah. Freaky. Hate, yeah, I hate those things. I'm not the best flyer. Actually, I was much better at it than I thought. I was always like, too many of my favorite people have died in these fucking things. So I'm not that keen. But I think it's more the idea of just flying, you know, and crashing in the desert. Yeah. You know, like if you're flat at Port Lincoln or wherever in one of those things. I don't know that kind of, the idea of just crashing out in the hot desert somewhere really sucks but for some reason over the ocean I'm fine I'm probably <laughs> I'm, like, I'm probably the opposite <laughs> the ocean freaks the shit out I guess out if you me. crash in the ocean if you survive that then you gotta tread water with the sharks yes for a while no thank you there would be I think that yeah that's happened a lot when people have survived plane crashes that they've been taken by sharks anyway so no, it's like, I don't know why but two like, of like the rarest things yeah <laughs> and one goes yeah and then lightning strikes at the same yeah. time back home you've got a lottery ticket winning like. oh dude everything yeah no that was uh, way over I was a bit I was a bit nervous but my uh, our bass player is a pilot okay um so he like he was jizzing his pants he was like so excited to be on the plane because you can see like they don't have a door yeah for the cockpit you can just see everything that's going on so you know if something went wrong you would just like see the look on the pilot's face as yeah. soon as you would see it in real time there would be no like I don't know how many flights I've been on where something's gone wrong because I wouldn't know because yeah. it, it just would have happened in the cockpit they would sort it out you know maybe tell people there was a bit of turbulence yeah. and that's it whereas on a plane like this something goes down you're like fucking <laughs> hearing him scream. You're in the, yeah, you're in on the action yeah. from the get go. It's like, it's like, have you seen um, Almost Famous? Yeah, it's like that scene in Almost Famous yeah. where it's like <laughs> they all start just telling each other all the shit they've always wanted to say, and they like destroy the band because they think they're all gonna die. And yeah. Then he, then he opens the door and he's like, "We're gonna live." <laughs> oh fuck! And like, fuck! I think the bass player just told everyone he's gay. Yeah. Like the other guitarist told everyone that he fucked the other guy's wife. Oh, oh man. God. Classic. That is a, that is a classic. Yeah, our bass player's the funniest dude. He's like his whole personality is depicted by the image of a dog with his tongue out the window. You know. Yeah. That's just him. Yeah. And so then, like, whenever he, he sees a plane, he's like, "Look!" and he can like name it and knows everything about it oh okay and he's like uh, <laughs> we were trying to be pretty restrictive on um, we went to Europe in the UK last year yeah and we were trying to be restrictive on how much stuff we took over and he's like can I take my um, my paragliding no not par- what's it what's it called the one with the oh, shit I can't remember what it's called that he does hang gliding no you know where they just jump off a cliff and they got the parachute thing above their head and they steer it around oh that's not hang gliding, is it? it or I thought I thought I had another name. Maybe it is hang gliding. I don't know. Anyway, he does that. Wow. Um, just cause. Just cause. But he wanted to take it with him. 
you know, we were already trying to like, I was only yeah. taking one guitar and like no amp or anything. And we're trying to take minimal amount of stuff. And he's like begging us to take a shit so that he can jump <laughs> off cliffs in Scotland. Yeah. He ended, up, he ended up going afterwards. Um, we came back and he stayed on and he ended up in France. And I saw footage of him like, um, he was doing some course and he was practicing like a, they do this move where they kind of do like, they spiral down mm-hmm. and then they catch themselves and like, they catch a pocket of air and like pull themselves kind of out of it. Oh, okay. And he like was doing it over, over a lake or a river and he like fucked up and half of it like folded in on itself. And only that day he'd bought an emergency chute and he had to use it. But it's yeah, cool footage. He's just like trying to do this move and he just fucks it up and it flips over and he's like, fuck. Wow. <laughs> Starts like plummeting towards this river. You I'll know, shit my pants. Yeah, from a height where if you hit the water, you'll break some limbs. Oh. Um, yeah, he's he's nuts, that dude. I always wonder about, about that, like, because, you know, the way we see and feel water is like it's, it's not a solid. I always wonder about what, like, about that height and how... Yeah, how are you supposed to break it before before you get down there and die? Because like, don't people? I don't think it's a regular thing, but like the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne, isn't that? Don't haven't people jumped off that to kill yeah. themselves and stuff? Probably. I'd assume so. Mm. Yeah, because I guess yeah. Wouldn't there be a possible way though to fall? And if you had like the perfect angle and the perfect amount of you know the perfect dive that you could kind of survive a fall I've always, like I've always like, wondered. Is there a physics to that? <laughs> but I just wonder if like, if you're going yeah. in like fingers first, like a diver, if they just, if that's just the first part of the pain before the rest of your body shatters as well. <laughs> yeah, like if all your fingers just kind of fan out. Yeah. <laughs> all your skin comes off. Oh, <laughs> Oh man. Like, yeah, I, reckon, I reckon if you fall from a certain height and hit the water, you just like, you would just be in pieces. Surely. Yeah, I feel like it's like probably the same as hitting concrete, but we should try it sometime. Yeah, for sure. Can next life failure. Yeah. <laughs> Wait for the next one. Yeah, the thirties are approaching. Yeah, that's it. Oh man, so you've you've toured you've toured um, Europe then? Yeah, I, I can give you a bit of a like lowdown. So this over the last I guess since high school. So my high school band Granny Flat we. Um, we ceased to exist kind of a, a year or so after high school mm-hmm. and the other guys I spoke about Camilla but the other guys Josh and Michael who, who were also uh, at our school Josh was in our year you remember him Josh Morford yeah I remember Josh is Ma- and Mark was his brother yeah the little so he, brother so they play basketball too yeah. yeah I played against Michael last year I oh think. cool yeah how'd he do um not flash not flash not flash <laughs> um, but only night. played against him only played against him twice so right um, not no, yet, but um, yeah, they they are yeah. So they've got a band now. Um, Josh moved to Melbourne for a bit. He's had a kid. And he's got a he's got a little son. He's got his second one on the way. Wow! So you guys um, will be from Granny Flats to grandparents in a matter of probably twenty twenty five years. Crazy, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, there's already three kids in the in the Granny Flat family. Well, almost yeah, yeah. The third one. Two point well. something. Because I got one too. Yeah, but um. Yeah, so they're, they're doing uh, cool shit. And then I had, like, I joined this, like, corporate kind of... I did the corporate world for a bit. I realized when I was, like, 19 that I just wasn't good at anything else. I think it was, like, high school's fault because I they let me get away with a lot of shit just for being good at music. Yeah. It was good because I went to... 
because Brighton was so music focused and I became a kind of integral part of their thing. Um, I just, I feel like I got away with a lot of shit. Yeah. Like at the start of year 12, Granny Flat won like 20 grand for the school in some band competition. I think we, I actually remember that. we that. won. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like after that, I just didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Just I was, paid for I was getting graded for assignments <laughs> that I never even handed up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there was always one guy there was always Mr. Fisher and he was like just always gunning for me he just always had his sights he just he wanted me gone he was like always trying yeah, to find him. some he was like the the, the evil, the, the the evil character in the you know he was that guy and then I always had kind of like Miss O'Neill and Mr. Kong and Mr. James like always coming to my rescue yeah. which was awesome like but yeah anyway the point is I didn't I didn't really build any life skills to uh, go and achieve anything else. So what were you doing in music? music? So like corporate I world. did teaching for a bit. I was teaching oh, okay. down at Wollonga, but like 30 students a week. While I was doing that, I, I joined this like Beatles, this Australian Beatles show, like the band, the Beatles. Yeah, and I'd, yeah. play the, I'd play the part of George, you know, like <laughs> sing songs like Here Comes the Sun and While My Guitar Gently Weeps, like... <laughs> Bingo. So yeah. was it was John it like comedy as well? Or? No, it was like oh man, it might as well have been. <laughs> it was for real. Like people, people are so nostalgic, man. Yeah, people buy tickets for that shit. Yeah, you see it all the time. Like a Michael Jackson show will come and do Debbie Theater and sell out multiple nights. And yeah, like Queen tribute shows and whatever's going on. Beatles ones are probably the most. Like there's so many of them, and I was in one of them. But like we would tour Australia and do shows with orchestras and go over to Asia and stuff like it was it was pretty cool Holy shit. one of the first things I did in that band was like I hadn't done any touring I hardly been into state really I just I hadn't even been overseas by that point like my family wasn't much of a traveling family I guess but um yeah like as soon as I joined that band it was like we went straight to Darwin and did like a month in Darwin which was cool just yeah. like these shows and there was another guy in that band who was kind of closer to my age and we were getting pretty pretty reckless yeah it was cool but yeah a couple of years of that and I was starting to pull my hair out and starting to hate the Beatles which is a problem because I, I used to love the Beatles and that kind of ruined it for me right <laughs> but that was like my first foray into like the professional music world but that was a bizarre thing anyway because I think I always wanted to be a songwriter and I was doing this other thing mm-hmm. so got out of that oh I, yeah it was when I was leaving that band then I had this, this thing happen and I was like glassed in the face and um, was in hospital for a while and couldn't sing for a few months and had to recover. I remember that as well. Yeah. I think actually um, soon after it, what dinner, What year was that? 2011. 11. Um, yeah, so I think soon after that, I came back from college like just for my um, like summer break oh, yeah. and I saw you somewhere and you were doing a gig and I was like oh man how's things and you're like yeah yeah got glass in the face but pretty good <laughs> yeah hectic times man yeah but that was like a lot of um you know bed ridden uh, bed ridden drug taking recovery sort of endo yeah. endo got me through that that was cool what was what was that oh it was just like it that's that's why I kind of hate that I hate that the one thing I hate about having to do music for a living is that you got to kind of play in venues that you wouldn't otherwise play in to make good money. So right. like, you know, you get paid a lot of money to sing Wonderwall and the horses, the douchebags yeah. for like five nights a week. 
it's unfortunate and I and I've actually recently kind of stopped doing that but that's the sort of thing you'll end up in a venue where there's just like alcohol fuel fueled violence and right. all that sort of stuff and this was just one of those things I was playing at the Lion and there was a douchebag up the front who just like was dancing with my girlfriend and kind of wouldn't take no for an answer and she's she was she was cool like she could look after herself sort of thing um, and so I was watching it she was right up the front I was playing at the time I was like oh she'll be you know she can handle this sort of thing but then I realised he was being pretty full on and she actually had to turn around and like say no and like push him away yeah and then she turned around to leave the dance floor and he just planted both his hands on her ass just like boom and I was like hey so at which point I intervened and like shoved him with my foot from the stage like while I was playing just actually just trying to say dude fuck off that's my girlfriend sort of thing thinking that then he would put two and two together but it seemed like he just had forgotten what he'd just done and then he was like who's this guy and what's he doing that for and just like but yeah the strangest thing is that he was like a suit you know a suit wearing guy right he owned the business across the road from the lion um but yeah so then at one point there was like a drum solo and i went down to make sure rachel was okay and that she had some friends around her because she seemed a bit shaken up because it was pretty it was a pretty creepy interaction yeah but yeah he like followed me over because i was like talking standing with her for a second he like followed me over i was like oh fuck he's coming all right it was like i just kind of thought like normally i kind of let that you know it's at the especially that place it's normally like some big guy who you suspect is a bikey or something that's being a dick and you just kind of like you can't really do anything about it yeah but this guy i was kind of sizing him up and i was like man i'm sick of taking you know this guy's got to learn that you can't do this shit yeah and he's got a suit, so you figure and he's got something to lose. It's not, as well, like, it's not like, like I thought I'm gonna pummel this guy. It's just that I thought I'm gonna, I'm not gonna just fucking let him know. Like, yeah. yeah. So he comes over. He's like, "What's your problem?" Like, I'm like, "You, you can't just, you can't go grabbing my." Actually, you can't go grabbing any girls on the ass like that, let alone like my girlfriend. Yeah. And then he just kept saying, "What's your problem?" I'm like, "I'm fucking explaining my like yeah. really." And then I just turned around and ignored him, and he put his like hand around my neck from behind, and I turned around and like shoved him off me really hard. And I think I like shocked him. He's like, oh, fuck, this guy's not going to take shit. So then I thought he was just like, I thought he was swinging the first punch. I was like, it's on. But he picked up a pint glass and just shoved it into my face. Fucking so hell. it was just after a push. That's all. And so, and so there was like, <coughs> it's full. It's actually bloody online, which sucks, but oh wow, there's footage of it and everything. So it was just one. Yeah. My hands were down as well. So yeah, he was trying to sort of claim um, self-defense and he let the trial just drag on. I think he spent a lot of money on that shit. Yeah. And the judge, the judge just threw the book at him. He got five and a half years. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's good. Well, fucking, that's what you get, man. Because yeah. you could have been blind, man. Well, look, yeah, well, that was the first thing. I put my hand up over my face like this and I slowly pulled my hand down over my eye and I could see. I mean, it was red. There was like blood all in it, but I could see out of my eye and I was like, thank fuck. But I knew that like if I took my hand off, my cheek that my face was going to like fall off. It yeah. was like, <laughs> it was pretty full on, man. And when I was outside, there was like a paramedic that had, he had like a, you know, bandages and towels and shit kind of yeah. holding it on there. And they were so full of blood that he had to change it. And there was like these guys in front of me that were like smashed and they were just standing there like, fuck, he's going to do it. Like, he's going to pull the bandage off. Oh. <laughs> like, they're standing there just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Yeah. Like, and um, I was... I was still, I guess, in shock or whatever. So I was just like laughing and I just thought it was kind of funny. I wasn't in pain yet. Yeah. I had a friend behind me who was like bawling his eyes out. The, uh, as soon as the guy did it, like everyone jumped on him. So he was around the side being pummeled. I was just there like um, 
just kind of just dealing with it, I guess. And then, yeah, so the moment he took the bandage off my face and this guy in front of me, like, they're like, the moment they saw it happen, one of them just turned and vomited in the pot plant, right? I was like, come on, guys. Not be good. (laughs) Come on, guys. Like, pull, you know, pull your shit together. Yeah. Help me out. (laughs) You know what, you're not making this any better for me. Um, Yeah, so it was like uh, plastic surgery, like 36 stitches. I had like a severed saliva gland. So like for months afterwards, every time I would eat, saliva would actually leak into my face. So I'd I'd eat and then I'd have this big uh, fat cheek full of saliva and then I'd actually have to poke a hole like in the scar with a pin and kind of compress it and I would have a little like um, sprinkler of saliva just come outside my face. Yeah, for like a month or so afterwards. And then I think eventually I was meant to go in for surgery. They were going to Botox my saliva gland, which was supposed to stop that from happening. But right before I went in for the surgery, it just, I think it just kind of healed itself. And it oh, okay. Happening. Yeah. So yeah, then, then from there on, it was just like years of going through the court stuff and then doing like a, trying to do a civil suit against him and then realizing he must have cleverly kind of moved all his assets or something and oh. it was kind of hard to so we went victims of crime in the end and, but yeah so during that period of recovery I was like I don't want to do this corporate thing anymore I just want to write songs mm. I um I think another friend of ours did um, victims of crime I won't name him because uh, just in case he doesn't want anyone to know but uh, are you from our school remember possibly something similar though like a king hit I think or something but he's he's all good now but he he was going through the same shit for yeah i remember maybe afterwards you can remind me who it was yeah, but yeah, um, I, I do yeah i do definitely remember something like that happening yeah but um it's funny that like obviously the story it's like it takes longer to tell it than it does for the events to happen but usually security and stuff are onto that shit so quickly yeah um but i mean especially if it was just from a shove you're not really, they, they, probably, oh, yeah. they could have seen it and been like, it's just, you know, it's a shove. I'll start walking over. And then he's just instantly gone for a pine glass instead of a shove back or like yeah. a punch at least. Like that's like, some bitch shit. Couldn't it be? Yeah. Like if he punched me in the face, I would have been like, all right, fair game. Yeah. Like, that's kind of how it goes. Someone shoves someone and they get all shitty and like punch him or whatever. Yeah. And if he had punched me in the same spot, it would have been a bruise and then I would have maybe pushed him back or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then there would I was in the mood to not take his shit. Yeah. You know. But is that who the mother of your child is now? Is this the same? No, person? so that was ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Um, but we were still together for a few years after that. So, but yeah, poor hurt man. She was, um, Rachel was like staying next to me when it happened. So she was like, Oh, covered in oh, blood no. and stuff. And like, they shut the whole place down. Like there was just, yeah, blood everywhere. Oh, like course. leaders and everyone, like they just got everyone out. Did you need a transfusion or anything? Nah, I, nah, I wasn't. They kept asking if I was like getting dizzy or whatever. But I don't know. They said I probably lost the. Yeah, I would have been getting to the point where it was close. Want to lose much more than yeah. that? Were you drinking? Because I had like there was like multiple arteries in my cheek. Yeah, just severed. So that was the first thing when they got me to the hospital was they take me straight to emergency, and they had one person there that was designated to. Um, local anesthetic they had to inject that into my cheek mm-hmm. and it was coming out just as quick as it was going in so they just had to keep refilling the needle and yeah. keep doing it while there was someone else just trying to get the arteries 
And so they'd like try once, they'd be like yanking on my cheek and then they'd like, um, yeah, they'd like fuck it up or miss it and like they'd have to keep doing it. It was just, oh man, it was just like an hour or so of that. And by, and by that point, my family had rocked up as well and it was just yeah. like everyone was in there and I was just trying to lighten the mood. Yeah. I think there was like some nurse who I was like- Your poor worry there was some, parents, man. <laughs> Your dad's like, I told you not to jump off that. that they were cool, they were cool. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there was some like nurse there that kept like, I don't know, she kept trying to give, give me water or something. And I just kept like jokingly flirting with her and making little like- um, yeah. <laughs> just like, cause she was like an older, nurse kind of with her cleavage out and stuff and yeah. it was just like funny <laughs> I was just trying to lighten the mood yeah it's all you can do really yeah but yeah and then the fucking like the news got around it and stuff it was super annoying yeah yeah so now if you like even like recently I started doing F45 that's the only gym sort of thing I can handle at the moment yeah talking about that shit it's nice and quick yeah it's minutes. like little little increments of little goals and it's cool but yeah even like then and like the fucking my gym guy like the, uh, the guy running it at the next, the second time I went in for a session, he's like, Hey man, I like Googled your name. Like I saw what happened to you. It's like, fuck man. That was like 2011. Like, yeah. You should Google my name and my music should come yeah, up. Yeah, that's you know? it. That's but fuck. still, if you Google my name, that's still like the top thing that's, mm. that I've done. Is that <laughs> what? I don't even know what the algorithm is. achievement. Based, <laughs> based on hits probably. I don't I know. I think it's also because my music stuff is always just under Dusty Lee. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's always under my band names. So like Wanderers or Skies. And, um, but Dusty Lee, I, I never kind of add Stevenson onto the end, but yeah. if you actually do type in Dusty Lee Stevenson, then that's when all of that stuff comes up and it's just like articles and they kind of followed it right through, you know, you come out of court, it got to a point where I started taking the piss out of it and I'd start to wear really stupid jackets, oh, okay. <laughs> like come out of the courtroom and I'd be wearing like a pink paisley jacket or something yeah. just like, cause I knew that they'd be there. Yeah. And then, 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 yeah. Especially in Adelaide, like not a lot of, not a lot of shit going on. Since no, and, and I think it was at a time when they were trying to <clears throat> really uh, spread it. Like, it happened a bit. There was some other poor guy who got, who lost an eye at the at the London Tavern. And he was just like a, he was there for a pub crawl for his, like, you know, um, he was like a scientist or a mathematics, like, studying, like, something, you know, not the type of culture that's going out and getting fucked up and causing trouble. Like, yeah. they were, like, the smart kind of nerdy dudes. Like I met him as part of this whole thing and, um, yeah, he just like just some douchebag just took his eye out, you know, with a glass in. And so uh, that was kind of going on at the time. So they kind of started to use me as a poster boy for that sort of shit because I guess I had a bit of a name for myself when I was out there in the public eye. Yeah. And, um, they were taking advantage of that a bit, which is funny because like I do like an interview with them and they would be like, do you think if there was only um, plastic cups in venues that less glassings would happen. And I'm like, <laughs> what do you reckon? Yes. <laughs> and then next minute there's like, glassing victim demands plastic cups Dem- in venues. And I'm like, <laughs> I never said that. Like, yeah. I just answered an obvious question. Yeah. Like, you know, if you ask, if you asked me a more thorough question, I would have said, I think it should be no dickheads in venues. Yeah. I like to drink my scotch from a glass. Yes. You know, I don't want, I don't think that, yeah. And I think certain venues, like if a venue does attract, a, you know, a high percentage of fucking dickheads, like, you know, you're not exactly going to serve glasses in every drink at Red Square or something like this. Right. Just, yeah. I, I think they don't, which is cool. But 
um, you know, certain, there should be like a scale that assesses like how many things have gone down in this venue over a certain amount of time. It's like, yeah, we're going to revoke your plastic, uh, your glove. Yes. That's a good idea actually. Yeah. Like that should be the thing, you know, but they didn't ask me that. They just said, because especially those places aren't the places where there's, you know, avid beer drinkers who want a certain shape of glass for a certain beer for the aromas and blah, 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 blah. It's just fucking those, Just dudes trying to get fucked up and, you know, pop pills or whatever, whatever yeah. it is they want to do, get in fights. I don't know. But yeah, yeah they, don't, they don't particularly need glasses. They need cups. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that's all kind of over now. Um, yeah, so cool. after that and Darwin and teaching the corporate world, you moved moved on to what? Then I, I had a band. I formed a band with like my closest friends and um, yeah, my first kind of, yeah, back to performing after that whole thing was, was an original gig, which was nice. It was like, I booked this venue, I pulled a band together. I'd written all these songs like while I was kind of bedridden and stuff. Yeah. And I just pulled some of my favorite musicians together. We booked a venue and it was kind of like a comeback, comeback to music gig for me. Cause it had been a few months and it was also like the, sorry, the debut of my new original project, which at the time was called Angels of Gung Ho. And we did some stuff. We like toured and released some stuff. I think like back then I didn't really, um, I was a bit, I was walking a bit blind with that sort of thing, you know, like, and I see it now as well. I try and help out a lot of younger bands because now I've got a lot of experience and knowledge in the industry. Yeah. And I know at one point, which was then, so you're talking 2011, 12 through to 13 sort of thing. I would just be like, let's like record some music and then let's just like put it on the internet and there you go. Yeah. It's like, have that. And like, how are people going to fucking hear that? Like this, you've got to plan your release. strategic maneuvers and yeah. there's things you got to do. And I didn't know that at the time. So, I mean, we wrote some great songs and did some cool gigs and got some good support opportunities and, you know, went to Melbourne a bunch of times and played some shows. But, you know, it was like, we didn't, never quite did anything huge. It was a shame because it was a really good band. We never actually ended, but we just kind of went on to other things. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was cool. That was like a few years of that. And then while I was doing that, I started doing more of the solo cover gigs and that sort of thing and to pay the bills. You still doing that? Uh, recently, I kind of stopped a bit. I've pulled out substantially. I've still got a couple of venues that I enjoy. Yeah. The ones where I don't have to sit under TVs that are playing sport. There's honestly some gigs where I have to coincide the end of my songs with the crows kicking a goal just so I can get applause. (laughs) That's genius. It's like, I'll see, I'm like 10, like 30 seconds into a song and I'll see crows are about to kick a goal and I'll just like hit the last chord. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking love it. Those, some of those gigs are soul crushing, man. And I think, because the money's so good, man, those, you can like put, when you see a guy like in the corner of a, of a bar, uh, some sports bar, no one gives a fuck, you know, seems soul crushing. Yeah. But he's probably making a hundred dollars an hour you know, you get 300 bucks to do something like that. And so the money's so enticing that you just think, fuck it, you know, I'll do it. But after eight years of doing that sort of shit, four or five nights a week, it's just kind of like, I'm, I'm a songwriter and I just want, I want to make that sort of money from my music. Yeah. Yeah. And I always thought I could do that and keep writing songs. And then eventually kind of, there would be some sort of crossover where I would be able to stop doing that and, and, but I think I've just got to kind of go all in on the original thing. Mm. And so I'll still do a couple of the cover gigs that I want to do, 
in venues that, you know, that are a bit more diverse and that I can kind of do my thing. I can do whatever I want. They, they just say, play three sets of whatever. Yeah. So I can do my music. I can do my favorite artists. Like, I don't have to, it's not like a whole crowd of, you know, douchebags are going to come in and demand Wonderwall and the horses, which is what happens at a lot of those places. And that's right. why it sucks because they're unappreciative. They're like, oi, like, you just be singing a song. It's like happened to like the Mosley England Elg and stuff. You just be like mid song and like some drunk chick will come over and like knock the microphone into my face as she's coming over, not apologize. And then while I'm still singing a song, she'll like come up, put her face in my ear. Be like, oi, can you play no scrubs? Or, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm fucking, I'm kind of doing something here. Yeah. You know? Fuck that. Like, do you like see like a fucking roof tiler? standing on top of a ladder and go up over to the ladder and like shake onto it. Be like, oi, oi. Can you like, do my bathroom? Can you, oi, can you change that one? Can you put an, a different color one over there? Oi, oi, stop. It's like, fuck man. And then they, and then whenever I kind of bite back at him and I'm like, no, fuck off. Like, yeah. you're so red. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like, look at you. Yeah. Like, who do you, they just like, they think because music is fun that I must, you know, I just have to enjoy it. And so if I finish a three hour gig to people like that at a venue like that, sorry, I'm sounding really bitter and sour right now, but if I finish <laughs> a gig like that, like I guess, <clears throat> yeah, life behind a microphone, you kind of experience this like side of humanity that is pretty ugly because it's, it's, it's alcohol fueled mm. douchebaggery. And yeah, like, I don't know, people just fucking don't get it. It's just a bizarre little world. They just think, yeah, cause it's like music is fun it brings joy to people that we must just want to just do it all the time, like for free. Yeah. And so if I finish a gig like that, I've been playing for three hours. I'm like, no, I'm done. They're like, no, play another one. And like, if I say, no, I'm not going to, they get like angry. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to do encores with original gigs. It feels really good. Yeah. Especially when people come up and ask me to play music that I wrote, which is now happening more and more often where I do gigs and people are requesting my songs. It's awesome. But when people are just like, you've just done the final set and you've made sure that it's just all the really obvious ones. I'll tell you the top five. Yeah. And I would say I did a gig the other night where a guy came up to me, asked like consecutively for the most requested songs. <laughs> like it was just the most obvious thing. It was yeah. almost like it was just programmed. Some, sometimes I just feel like these people are just programmed to just yeah. like the same thing or something. I don't, I don't, I don't get it, but it's basically, it starts with Jesse's girl. Yeah. Okay. They often go to the horses. <clears throat> they want Wonderwall. Um, K-San. That's pretty up there. What's that? Uh, Coaches. Last train out of Sydney is almost gone. Oh, you know, you know the last train out of Sydney is almost gone. Well, you know that I would never ask for that. Because yeah. I don't think I know that. <laughs> there you go. See, that's cool though. That's, that's... <laughs> There's just, I don't know, there's just a few where it's just so, like almost when someone's walking at you, you can almost guess what they're about to ask <laughs> yeah, for. Social profiling. Like, don't you know other music? <laughs> like, that's what part of the thing that's wrong here is like, they're not, people aren't experiencing new stuff. You got kids that are like 18 who only want to hear The Horses by Daryl Braithwaite. How the fuck do they even know that song exists? Yeah. That song was like released in the 80s you know, and was like big for a little while or whatever and then just disappeared. Yeah. But then Triple M kept fucking playing it. Yeah. You know, and, and now, now, and then it became like a footy anthem somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and all the, and any Port Adelaide supporter ever always asks for Never Tear Us Apart. And some of these songs are fun to do because then you, you don't have to, 
you don't have to sing it much. Everyone else kind of does. So it's yeah. like, it's funny to see the drunk people kind of sing along and get loose to these songs. But yeah, just sometimes they're really appreciative and they have a lot of fun. And then I don't actually mind playing some of that stuff, but it's just when they're just assholes. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, you can probably tell I'm a bit over that kind of, oh, well, that kind of lifestyle. That but thing. also being, being a creative. Yeah. Doing other people's shit is, can, can be fun. Um, you know, if it's one of your favorite songs or whatever, but yeah. also then if you've got to do that five nights a week, it's not going to be your favorite song for long. No, exactly. It kind um, of ruins a lot of good stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, but yeah, creating your own shit, you want to perform your own shit and you want people to, you want people to experience it. Yeah. That's why you make it. You don't make yeah. it to practice it at home and then go out and do, you know, the horses. So yeah, it's completely understandable to feel that way, especially when people are going to be fuckwits about it. Yeah. So the basic grind of the long-term plan is like, so now, you know, since that other band Angels of Gung Ho, I kept, while I was doing this money-making cover stuff as well on the side, I was like, always had an original project going. So then I did this collaborative project with these electronic uh, music producers, we called it Skies, and it just like kind of blew up in this weird way. Which was, I it was a side project. And then the next minute we were like, um, yeah, we just had all these like big industry people kind of getting behind the band and um, people helping us out. There was like Boy and Bear's manager who also manages like um, Airborne and Montaigne and some of these bigger artists. Oh, and now Amy Shark who was just on Jimmy Kimmel the other week. Oh, uh, yes. But, yeah, yep. so it was like, um, he, you know, we've got like him saying, you guys are the best unsigned band in the country. I'm like, man, this isn't even a band. This is just like, this was a little side project. I think when we upload something to SoundCloud, it gets like reblogged in France and it just gets all these hits and all this shit wow and then we like start releasing music and then the government just starts like throwing money at us we got this like stigwood thing and they uh, basically paid for us to do this wicked studio session with this producer who had done albums with paul kelly and san cisco um cat empire and bands like that yeah and so he worked with us and we did that and then we released that song and then we went and we played big sound in queensland then we went and played the great escape in london in the UK, sorry, in Brighton, and um, it was just heaps of shit happening real quick, and kind of, um, that band was always just a relaxed side project, so, yeah. yeah, it was when we were touring and doing all that, we were different worlds, I was like an organic music guy, I really wanted the live thing, to the live thing was really important to me, we get on stage, I want us to pull off the best, like, live show and do as much as we can I don't just want to have everything on backing tracks there yeah. was a lot of synth and a lot of programmed stuff in that band um, so there was a lot of stuff we did have to have on backing but I wanted to pull off as much as we can live and like stretch our abilities and that sort of thing yep. the other guys were a bit more focused on what we could do in the studio and you know pull it together live just as easy as possible sort of thing and okay. so there was some clashes there different sort of personality things going on and stuff so after that tour and after all that pressure and all that stuff we just got back and it was just like None of us just, none of us talked about the band ever again. Oh, okay. Like the Sky, band, Skies? Skies, yeah. The band didn't break up. Yeah, if you want to look it up, there's uh, Skies. Our last song was called Speed Boy. Speed Boy.
I look at it on Spotify, there's like 80,000 plays on that song and there's, you know, there's some good kind of, it surprised me, I hadn't really looked at it a little while ago, I looked at our Spotify, I was like, shit, there's like, a lot of people have been listening to that band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> weird, but, um, yeah, we just got back and then we, we even, we got offered Groove in the Moo and, um, yeah, one of the guys wrote to us and he's like, we hadn't spoken in a couple of months. He's like, hey, we, I just opened our emails and someone wants us to play Groove in the Moo. <laughs> Oh, wow. And, and I was like, well, I'm keen. And then one of the other guys was like, nah, I wasn't really planning on being in the band by then. You know, he kind of, he was thinking by that time he'd sort of pull out. And oh, it was okay. just like, it just killed the vibe. Yeah. And I was like, well, if you don't want to, like, if there's no desire to continue it, then let's not try to flog it. So, yeah, there's never been, we've never said that we won't do another song or we had another single in the works. But, and it seemed that every time we would release a song, there was a bit of buzz and a bit of a vibe, which was cool. And I think the songs we did and the stuff we created in the weird circumstances was pretty extraordinary. Like just that these people from different kind of worlds and different um, appreciation for music and like they would listen to completely different artists to me. Yeah. And it was just like, they always called me this country blues kind of boy. It was funny. And then they were always, they were always on the cusp of knowing what's cool sound wise. And, and cause I've got this kind of diverse voice I could kind of get on there and emulate or, or just kind of sing different styles and, it was a lot of fun doing that stuff, actually. Yeah. Um, so we never said that we won't again. <clears throat> I think it's just kind of like a game. Who's going who's gonna to approach it first? Well, what about <laughs> that? The guy that said he like planned on not being in the band. Like, is he replaceable? Like, because, you know, like, Chili uh, Peppers have, like, you know, 10 fucking well, that guitarists. Band, that band is all about what happens in the, in the studio. I mean, the band started with just me and Micah. We did the first single like that. And then that, that's the other guy, um, Zabba. Um, he came in and then we, then we produced all the music from there with um, probably it got to a point where he was doing more of more of the production than the other guy and and then I would just kind of be singing so he became pretty integral and you know if someone's just not vibing something you don't try and you know I think all of us simultaneously were kind of not vibing it at the same time just yeah. after the tour like there was a lot of pressure just draining it was really weird and because they put a lot of money, all of a sudden they spend, you know, five grand on just a PR campaign for one song. Oh, okay. You know, and there's a lot of pressure for it to do well. And then if Richard, <coughs> King, Richard Kingsmill from Triple J turns around and says they're not going to add it to rotation, it's just like a kick in the guts, man. Yeah. You know. You, so did you, that, is so, that what happened? Right. For example, if you guys want a bit of an insight on the um, Australian industry, kind of how it's working out, I don't want to be too much of a whistleblower, but <laughs> I will. When, um, like, Triple J, often when they say um, that this is a... Oh, this is a song we found on Unearthed, you know? And yeah. they, they go up and they play a song and they make it sound like they've discovered it and they're heroes. But, like, often that band has paid, like, a substantial amount of money to a PR company who will go in there and, and uh, pitch music to Richard Kingsmill on a Monday afternoon. Mm-hmm or any time really, um, and Tuesdays as well. But yeah, they'll go and pitch music, and then, yeah, you might get like a, a spot play or two. Often if it's your first single, like your, your first like two or three. I've seen it with my friend, my friend's band. He's doing really well now, but like it took, you know, three or four singles of spending like thousands of dollars on PR campaigns um, until they finally added a song to rotation. Wow. So it's like... But then some artists will just like out of nowhere just, yeah. So with us, we, we took a single win. Um, like Kingsmill said, I really like it. 
but the band needs, his quote was the band needs more of a national presence. So, okay. Um, so like we're an Adelaide band, it's kind of harder to do, but that's all right. Just tour more. We did like some supports in um, like Sydney and Melbourne and stuff. We went up and played Big Sound. So yeah, so for the next single, we went back in and we were like, look, the band has like toured twice. They're now, they've played Big Sound. They're now announced that they're playing, they're actually right now, they're over in London playing at The Great Escape. Yeah, they're doing, like, we basically ticked all the boxes. Plus we worked with a really good producer, did the best sounding thing we could. It was the best song we'd done. Uh, we, ba- we ticked all the boxes plus some, take it back in again. Like, you know, we've got it this time. We, yeah. did, we did what you asked and then still it's just like, oh yeah, look, it's a really busy week for like, music releases like try again next week and then you know a few weeks later you just stop hearing anything and it's just like just weird because then we had KLP and Dom Alessio and some of the other main presenters playing our music off their own back you know even though it wasn't actually on the rotation list they just liked it so they were playing it anyway yeah and you just think with all of those things behind you and you've got you've if you've got it all going like what what can you do you're like powerless you know you think that strategy is kind of going to help, but it just depends on the day sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. Like, yeah, there's like, a, it's a real time of the place thing. So, you know, I mean, I can't blame Triple J. I don't want to sound like a bitter, bitter guy that kind of way, but I guess there's a way that they need to filter what's good and what's bad. And one way of that happening is that they have the PR companies that they trust kind of come in and present the music. I guess I just... Um, not stoked on the fact that it's kind of presented like they're finding it all, you know, on, yeah. the, on their database. Yeah. You know, there is definitely some amount of stuff that they, they do do a lot of fishing on Unearthed and they do a lot of reviewing, you know, bands and, um, you know, they give guys a go. I think they're doing it a lot more now than they were a few years ago, but there's definitely still that whole kind of, you got to go out on a bit of a limb. You got to spend a lot of money to kind of be heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you've got to have, you got to have all your shit together, your marketing, your imaging, like the image of the band, the, the public perception of the band, your stats, you know, like where, cause when you're on Spotify, you can see exactly where in the world you're being played and you know, who and why and that sort of thing. Same with SoundCloud and all that. So yeah, it's it, like all of that comes together. And even if you get all of it together, it still doesn't mean it's going to work. Yeah. It's just crazy. And then even if you do get added to rotation, the public might not take to the song or whatever. Yeah. So sometimes Triple J do get behind a song that they think is going to work and it doesn't. And then other times they won't get behind a song. Like there's some bands who got huge, so huge that Triple J just couldn't ignore. Yeah. Like Sticky Fingers were one of those. Yeah. Triple J had to get behind Sticky Fingers because if they didn't, they were going to be behind the game. It was like Stickies were already creating such a buzz yeah. on the East Coast. And already selling out shows and doing their thing. There was like, I think Triple, I heard that Triple J had been turning down their singles for years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, sometimes Triple J completely nails it and they get it exactly right. And they present, you know, they find artists and they give them a kickstart to their career. And other times it's just a shit fight and you're just like going through the trenches and kind of not getting any further. And yeah, so the Australian industry, for that reason, because it's one thing like triple j is like that is if you're a young band in australia that's the only way are they in cahoots with like any specific labels that like get on there easier than others or i don't think so i mean possibly i I can't i wouldn't say i wouldn't suggest that i mean it is possible i mean there's definitely labels that would have power you know yeah that like are in there and like 
there's definitely labels that get it right every time. Yeah. You know, like Future Classic and stuff. Like there's there's labels that nail it. And so Triple J plays all their artists just simply because they're all fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, I, just, I think the main problem is just that it's one, one medium. That's it. Like, so in Europe, like if one station doesn't like you, like another one will, and they'll be just as big as the one before it. Like, right. You know, there's like in every country, like in, in like London, if you're a rock band, there's like Planet Rock and there's like, um, yeah, there's just fucking shitloads of stations and it depends on your genre and your style and what you're going for, but they're all huge. Same with like Germany and like everywhere. Yeah. You start getting played on radio over there and you really notice the difference. Yeah. Here you can have a song on high rotation and you can sell out a tour or you can have a song on high rotation and still have no one rocking up to your shows. It's just a really bizarre thing. It's like, yeah. And it's just like, so, um, it's kind of crazy that, uh, well, from what I've seen, Australia hasn't, hasn't evolved with, uh, like digital radio, the same as other companies have in that we've still got the same radio stations. You got your two main ones with hit 107 and Nova. Yeah. Um, with all of the top 40 stuff yeah. Triple J with it's unearthed and like hot, hottest 100 and then Triple M with all the, the oldies and that's that's pretty much it then you got Fresh um, for the for the younger the people guys, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not there's there's not genre specific radio stations like there are throughout the rest of the world yeah like in America you've got your choice of like five hip hop stations rock stations punk stations heavy so metal good. stations and you're you're hearing what you want to hear when you want to hear it you've got your request hours which isn't isn't just um you have to request something in the top 100 it's you can request what you want to hear and, and yeah, so you know, we're going to play it which is yeah which is awesome and like we haven't adapted that over here I guess that's why, like, there's a, there'd be a lot of pressure on, on Triple J, because they they do have to kind of cover everything, and they've got to be like the tastemakers for the country. So, like, I get how, you know, if they don't have like a kind of narrow field, like it's pretty broad what they have to do. Yeah. So they've got to balance being the ones who decide, you know, the next music that's going to hit, and also being the ones that are like listening to the audience to decide what they're liking, yeah. what they want to hear. So it's like. Yeah, it would be a tough gig, man. And they, yeah, it'd be hard to get it right every time. For sure. Like, you even see it in the Australia Day, like, well, not Australia Day anymore, but the Hottest 100 Day. Um, how, yeah, it'll, there's no consistency because because they have yeah. to play everything. So, you'll, you'll go from, like, R&B to, to, like, you know, punk rock to Australian rock to hip hop. And it was just like a hardcore song thrown in. Or something. Yeah, yeah. That's always weird when that happens. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> you know, I just feel like, I, it just seems odd to me that hardcore fans would be listening to Triple J. Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> I just, <laughs> yeah, enough, so enough to be voting for him in the Hottest 100 and that yeah. sort of thing. Like, I, I think it's totally awesome. I think it's cool, man. But um, it's just so bizarre when you hear like, I don't know whatever whatever's going on you might hear like Hosier and then like uh, Phoenix or something and they've got all this cool like indie sort of shit you know Meg Mac and the next minute like what do I got yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah it's like I think it's good everyone's getting a shot man but yeah that does make it hard for mm-hmm. you know they might even have some sort of formula that's like you know our ne- you know our next 
Our next choice has to be, you know, metal. No matter what Dusty brings in. Yeah. Like he could bring in- That happens. Yeah. It does happen. Like they've got a certain quota. So if you take your single in, if it's the best thing you've ever written, but like two hours before there was another PR company in there who presented something that fit the same genre and they'd already, you know, or or the week before or whatever. And if they'd already kind of added that instead, that's it. Like your song just isn't going to make it. So you've got to then, you got to hustle your own thing. So like what we do, I guess moving on from Skies, outside of that I had uh, Startup Wanderers, which for me was just like, that was my project of not giving a fuck about that shit. So Skies was so in the world of, you know, high pressure singles that we, you know, we wanted them to succeed and work and like get on tours and festivals and, um, you know, really, it was really important to present music to Triple J. Yeah it was a really big moment when we'd release a single, get the artwork done and then present it to Triple J. It was kind of what we were based around. And then Wanderers for me was the project that did not give a shit about that. We weren't writing cool music. It was like, it's always, it was always like, you know, kind of dad rock and roll or something, you know, it's just like the shit that I loved growing up, you know, from like Hendrix through like guitar kind of based blues rock sort of stuff. Yeah. Which is and, and almost yeah, some some of it was almost a bit folky in the beginning and then then later on we've got a lot more soul. It's almost like Stevie Wonder kind of vibes. Um, but that's all the shit we love. So that's the band that we always just that was always just fun and there was no pressure. We just we recorded an EP ourselves called Goddamn Anything and released it and just for fun. And people really started liking it. So we'd do shows and start selling out local shows in Adelaide. Um, just cause it was like, it was really good musos, like well-written songs and people just connected with it. I yeah. think not in the same way though, that people were connecting with skies. So skies would have this really online fan base. Whereas Wanderers, like no one knew who we were online. No one gave a fuck. We weren't getting hits on Spotify or anything like that. Not, not like substantial amounts, Yeah. but people were coming to our shows, man. Whereas skies couldn't really, you know, pull that many heads to shows regularly. Um, so it's just like two different worlds all at once. And then once the skies thing stopped, I was like, well, Wanderers is a diverse enough band that I can just, how about I just start spinning it in a way that can work now, instead of it being that band, that's just a fun project that is never going to, you know, never going to work in the current climate. How's about we just spin it around a bit and, um, add in a few ingredients to make it work. And luckily for us right now at this time, there seems to be a resurgence of this kind of like seventies soul sound, this soul Motown kind of sound, Mm -hmm. which is what we've been tapping into. So it's like really good timing for us right now. So our new single and like the latest stuff we've been releasing is now starting to get critical acclaim like around the country. And we did well in Europe and the UK as well. So that band has now actually become a thing that can work. Um, So that's become the main focus. Yeah, that's good. And yeah, it's just takes just, you just got to change it up a little bit for us. It was like still sticking with the groovy old school vibe, but like adding in a few elements that are, make it a bit more modern. You know, like some Juno synths. Well, actually that's old school, but like, if you listen to old, older bands, like Toto and the Doobie brothers, there, there's some cool shit and even well, Stevie wonder and stuff, man, they were using these cool old school synths. And like, we just started tapping into that. Yeah. And like a bit more like groove four to the floor stuff. And, big choruses and yeah people were really connecting with that sound more than the initial kind of more acoustic bluesy sound that we were doing who uh who makes 
that strategic decision? Does that come from um, like management or do you guys sort of uh, take it upon yourselves? It wasn't like we, we didn't, we never sat down and said, all right, we're going to like change the sound to make it, you know, more commercial or something. It was more like, um, gradual evolution. Well, we'd be on tour and we'd just be listening to fucking like Anderson Pack and yeah, you know, <laughs> whoever else is going on like Moses Sumney and, uh, Thundercat, just cool shit. And we'd be going, we'd, uh, it just starts to get into your subconscious and then you're writing a song and you start, you start like tapping into similar chord, chord voicing, uh, voicings and similar groove styles. And, uh, but with your own unique um, way of writing over the top. So I think because those you know, artists like that are so huge right now. I mean, I saw Anderson Pack at Langway. Yeah. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And he's, the crowd loved it. It's crazy good. It's, but we're not like consciously trying to like emulate that. But I guess because we love that sort of stuff so much and we listen to it a lot and a lot of hip hop and stuff as well. It's like it's starting to come across a lot more into our sound. So we don't intentionally do it. It just sort of happens. And then it just happens to be that that sound is in at the moment. Yep. Um, I mean, we do realize that a bit at the time and we're kind of like, oh, cool. <laughs> it's, it's cool to not be doing something that's just totally outdated. Yeah. I, like, I like the idea of pulling sounds and vibes from an era that is kind of forgotten and then like integrating it with shit that's working now as well, just because we love both. Yeah. You know? Like the, our drummer, he's kind of the tastemaker. He's just got like playlists and just cool shit going all the time. Actually, who does the best playlist on Spotify is Questlove. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's got some, it's actually under his real name. I'm not sure what it is, but he's just got endless playlists of, you know, playlists. Love that, Questlove. Oh man, he's the fucking man. But we listen to his playlist when we're on the road and it's just all just groove, just cool shit. And you just get so many, yeah, so inspired and so many ideas from that. So then when we get in the studio, like the rhythm section or in the rehearsal room, the rhythm section, Matt and Malush, um, they're just such a groovy rhythm section that inst- I-, I can't just sit at home and write some singer songwritery kind of mellow song and then get in, get in rehearsal with those guys. Like, it's like they lend themselves to just kicking ass and making booties shake, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so all of the songs have gone down that road just because the band is so good at that shit. Right. So, so I end up writing like that. I'm writing a lot more on piano nowadays. Okay. So do you write, do you write generally in the studio? No, I write, I write a lot at home, but these days I just kind of write an idea. I used to write entire songs and I would, I would tell Matt what drum groove I wanted and I would tell, you know, Malusha or whatever, like what bass lines and, um, we would, I'd kind of have it all in my head exactly how I wanted it. But nowadays I just kind of write like a chorus. Yep. And that's it. And then I get in the studio and we write a verse and then we write a bridge and it becomes a whole song. Yeah. Um, but that's a cooler way to do it. I think it's like, it sounds more organic when you do it that way. Yeah. And then you, you try and just like, we always record our rehearsals. So we like write a song in a rehearsal and then we just try and like stick to that arrangement instead of overthinking it. Mm-hmm. Cause if I write on my own, I'll write a song then like a week later I'll go back and reassess it and I'll just keep workshopping it for like months and yeah. like finally take it to the band do they ever are they, well um, with your success I'd say that they are but they ever come back with like nah not feeling it like, yeah totally um, pretty honest yeah but I also think I, I know what's going to work and what's not before yeah. I take it to them as yeah, well right. so I kind of do a bit of that already 
And there's a lot of times that I write songs and think, this is a good song, but it's not for the band, you know? Yeah. Which is when there's other stuff that comes in, and this is something I'm looking into now that I really want to do, is I want to just have a publisher. Like, there's, there's a, a guy in Sydney that I could possibly use as a publisher, and which means that I could send him songs and then he could uh, dish them out to record labels and um, other artists, you know? I mean, a lot of these solo artists, these bigger ones, they don't write their own music. There's someone always behind the scenes doing that. Yeah. I would love to get into that. Yeah. Like, there's people who are just label writers. They just work for a record company and they just write songs for their artists. Yeah. Like, that would be such a good job. So, that's something that's kind of in my sights now to do. Like, instead of cover gigs, to do that outside of yeah. my stuff would be really cool. So, it just takes me... Oh, it just means i got to just write a lot of songs. I mean, if you send out... 50 songs to your publisher and if two of them get picked that's worth it yep. you know I've got some friends who do especially that especially if it's a hit yeah yeah. Well, I've got some friends who have been in the room when a hit has been written and they've got 5% or you know like you're just you're just there <laughs> you're just there when it happens and all of a sudden you're like you've 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 shouted out one idea and like you're then part of the thing yeah a friend of mine like co-wrote a song that went number one in New Zealand and, you know, that's not, obviously not as big as, like, if it went number one in the States or something. But still, like, it's pretty handy. Yeah, <laughs> like, fuck yeah. Those royalties, man, it's good. Yeah. For that sort of thing. I mean, royalties from Spotify sucks. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, you got to use that presence as exposure. And yeah. then you just you just got to tour and tour and tour to make your money these days. Because... You know what's fucked? They got so much money, though. Yeah. When we're, at the, we're, when we're at the Great Escape in Brighton, which is a huge like music conference, so you've got South by Southwest in America, and you've got Big Sound in Australia, um, they've got Canadian Music Week, and then in um, the UK, which basically covers the UK and Europe, they've got the Great Escape. Mm-hmm. And whenever they're doing it here, Triple J are always talking about the bands that they've got going over there. So when we were playing over there, it was really funny, because over there, all the bands were on a level, level playing field. And... You know, when we were over there, it was like the Rubens, Gang of Youths. Yep. Um, it was like Slum Sociable. Yeah, just like uh, uh, Methyl Ethel. Like bands that were doing really well back at home and no one knew who they were over there. So it's just like we were playing on lineups in between all these bands um, just as if we were <laughs> the same as them or whatever. I'm thinking, fuck, man, you guys just got number one on the hottest 100 last year. Yeah. You know, and like people here don't even know that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. But yeah, so Spotify put on this, they had this building, they had an entire building, like three floors, just open, like all the, like till two in the morning or something in, in Brighton where artists could go, you could flash your artist pass, go up there. They had like, you could get haircuts, massages. They had like a cocktail bar and make you anything you wanted. Holy shit. They had acoustic guitars supplied by Gibson just sitting around. They had like a games room. They had all this shit. They had just like a three-story building, just people working there 24-7 for like five days. That's wild. It's wild, but like that would have cost fucking shitloads. Like couldn't they just like... (laughs) They're paying like 0.1 cents per play. Yeah. You know, to artists. Yet Yet they'll go and like hire out an entire building for five days in Brighton and just like God knows amount of 
alcohol and everything else and paying everyone that worked there. It's just like, it's just crazy, man, like how that works. It's I mean, I was lapping it up. I was loving it. I spent most of my time there, but... <laughs> how do they... How do they... Um how do they get away with that? Like when they, when they came up with the idea, obviously the, I don't know, like artists don't sign sign off on that. The way they get away with it is because the, the prior thing to that was LimeWire and shit. You free, know? For free. Right. Yeah. I suppose. 0.1 cent per play is better than yeah. free, I guess. Yeah. That's why they get away with it, man. You know? Yeah. Don't quote me on point one. It might be more. It might be less. I think it's less. I think it's less. Point zero one. Yeah. Point zero one. I think it's point zero one. It's fucking terrible, man. Yeah. I listened to um, Joe Budden. He's a rapper. He's got a podcast. Well, he's an ex-rapper. He's got a podcast, and he he seems to really know the ins and outs of like streaming and royalties and uh, all of that because he's he's been more on the corporate side the last couple of years. Right. And yeah, I think, I think he said 0.01, which yeah, is fuck. a stitcher. I saw an article with that chick who did that, um, I'm all about that bass, about that bass. Oh no yeah. Trouble. I mean, she got played some stupid amount of times. She actually, I think, I'm pretty sure it was her, but she posted the photo of her royalty check from Spotify for like 54 million plays or whatever it was. And I can't remember what the amount was, but it was, you know, it was not something that you think would add to that amount well, of success. Well, 54 million, probably like five and a half grand. Yeah, something, yeah, something like that. Like it was, it That's was foul. <laughs> 54 million means that like your song has touched, you know, like a large percentage of the population. Yeah. And you get like five and a half grand for that. Yeah. It's fucked up. Same with, I think, um, Gautier as well. He came out with, uh, he came out with some, something he was talking about because obviously his song somebody that I used to know was like one of the biggest on the planet that yeah. year and um yeah I know that he was getting uh, fucked in the ass with the royalties too yeah it's all about touring and, and merch I think that's you know? the thing yeah merch is huge and merch bands yeah there's some like Violent Soho man they would make so much from merch it's like you, you they've walk, got cool shit I don't even listen to them and I'd wear, I'd wear their yeah, shit yeah you go everywhere and there's someone walking around in a Violent Soho shirt same with the local guys my mates Bad Dreams they're like um yeah it's the branding so it's like they've gone like beer logo yeah West End Draft with Bad Dreams oh okay people love that shit yeah. oh I've I've actually seen that now you yeah. say that yeah and it's like it's like uh associating brands so yeah. like it's something that already um looks familiar but then it's a band name yeah yeah a lot of bands are doing that now we we're looking at like a, we we're looking at you know ton the beers yeah like the cheapest beer we were looking at that logo the other day we we're like oh we can do ton yeah <laughs> like wanderers instead of ton yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't know. get it <laughs> yeah well, that's the thing i bet if we did that we'd suddenly start selling shitloads of shirts yeah, for real but no, I think there's bands that just lend themselves to that sort of thing. Like once you're a band who becomes cool, like a party band, there seems to be this huge scene at the moment of, actually I was talking the other, last night about this with someone, how like when we were growing up, there was like that, there was like that emo thing, you know, like Blink-182. Yeah. Bands like that, where there was this kind of this whole scene around it and they would just always wear the merch and like, it was a brand, man. It was huge. And it was like Simple Plan and all that shit. It was yeah. like the emo world. And then, um, it was the punk world too, you know, Offspring and Sum 41 and stuff like that. And it was just like merch, 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 merch. And these days it seems to be this, this culture 
now of these bands that, you know it's like the the lads the shooey kind of oh yeah you know june rats and all stuff like that yeah what's it june rats i guess violence soho would be in that bunch there's a new band called skeggs that are kind of getting up there with that vibe and it's just this like loose like, yeah. <laughs> lad like fucking pouring beers all over each other paying way too much for a can of west end yeah like fucking I saw him going for like $9.50 a fat controller wow like, four of them that's a slab dude they used to be called dirty 30s for a reason yeah. 30 bucks for 30 <laughs> that's <laughs> now they're paying $9 for one it's so one. funny it's like in hip hop it's more of it's like hip hop's like a fashion culture now yeah. so but they don't make their their own shit so it's instead of being some 41 and having some 41 merch it's like um you know being kanye west and having adidas uh shoes oh like, like sponsorships and that sort yeah of like or, like a, like as if a, you're a sports person yeah sort of way yeah yeah or like I think John Mayer is doing Nike these days I just saw a picture of him all decked out in Nike he loves that shit but like ASAP Rocky and like like the Pyrex shit like yeah yeah it's it's cause that's that's how you have to make your money is through sponsorships. through sponsorships through merch through touring because selling your music you can there's no way to live off of yeah. it yeah it's um yeah it's not it's same with music gear too that's really helpful actually and I'm looking into that now but like if you can get it into it like someone's making me a guitar at the moment and that'll be really cool like it, it'll just be a kind of you know here's this custom guitar yeah like just put your name to it as much as you can and spread the word kind of thing and I will because I'm going to be yeah it's going to come out well I'll be stoked yeah but like the, you know it's really cool to have an endorsement for the thing that you use so like strings uh, for drummers it's drumsticks yeah you know they're like a my friend's endorsed by a drumstick company and he just or like gets shipments rock up um, and you get a drum kit it means if, if you're endorsed by a drum company it's not just that you get free drum kits it means when you go tour to a place like Ludwig or Gretsch or something if they've got a factory nearby they will deliver a drum kit to that festival that you're playing for free and you just yeah. get there and your kit's there yeah so that that shit's really handy it saves so much cash because instrument hire on tour is so expensive. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And um, obviously it's not cheap to get extra luggage and shit on, on planes. No. So it's not, yeah, it's not easy to even okay. transport it yourself. Everything's expensive. We're like, we're like seven tours or something in with Wanderers. We're about to embark on our next one. And I think the best we've ever done is broken even on a tour. Wow. You know, it's like... Which is cool because you get to go and like we kind of we get per DMs each and we we try and not spend too much of our own money, um, but I think we still do. You know, <laughs> like we we're in Byron Bay the other week. We had four days off in Byron, so we're like we're not just gonna like live off thirty dollars a day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like on the Sunday night at the beach hotel, beautiful girls were playing and all our friends were there, and it's like we're gonna have a big one. Yeah, and we're not gonna spend the band money on it. So you know, it's expensive. But the idea is that you keep doing the slog and then eventually your the, the worth of the band goes up and you can only hope that each tour you're scoring festivals to and if you start getting a few grand per festival then it starts bankrolling the whole tour. Yeah. And you don't yeah, it starts making money instead of losing. And then yeah. you start selling tickets. Yeah. So right right now we sell tickets in Melbourne and in New South Wales. But still like we do free shows um, sometimes in different areas there, but also 
free shows in Queensland and we're going to WA in a few weeks and that'll be free shows too just because no one knows, yeah well no one really knows who we are so yeah do you do gigs in Adelaide not much anymore no? we're, we've just announced our first headline show in Adelaide for about a year okay I mean we just did Blenheim Fest on the weekend that was in Clare Valley that was cool and we did like a friend's CD launch the other week but we kind of flew under the radar for that one just yeah. to because it was kind of close to some other stuff we were doing but that was you know it was really fun but in terms of headline shows yeah not not that many there's no point yeah <laughs> I play heaps of shows in Adelaide yeah but under the name Wanderers where we do our shit with the same guys and you know present the thing which is cool because it means when we do it's a bit of an event and people um, come out for it and you know it's that show where people know your songs and rock up in your shirts and it's good fun where do you record the last recordings we did actually studio opened up around the corner from me man so I live in West Highmarsh and on Phillips Street in Thevenant like across from the brickworks and stuff yeah this studio opened up and um I just like wrote to the guy and I was like can I come down and check it out and I went there and it was like legit set up this dude Lewis he's like 25 or something and he um saw it on Gumtree <laughs> cause there was a studio that used to be there it's in an old infirmary like oh, it's okay. like this factory kind of complex yeah and you go through and there's like a massive crane there and there's all this shit going on they've got other businesses there that are all like building businesses and stuff and but then you go around the side and you go down these stairs and like under this big wreck uh red brick building with a massive chimney that was an infirmary and there's a wicked recording studio at the bottom it's small but the workflow is amazing yeah and when this guy Jackson fly down from Sydney to, to record with us because he just did the Tim Wolf record and um, we really love how that sounds and we met him through that and um, he did like Vera Blue's recent record and he worked with Delta Riggs and Sarah Blasco and you know some stuff like that and he's, and he's a wicked dude and I've never seen someone so fast so it means if you want to do something, if you want to bang out an idea, normally it's like, yeah, hold on, let me just like set this up and like you go out and you eat some lunch or something and come back and then we'll do it. But it's like, you want to do it when you've got the idea and the vibe. Yeah. So with him, it's like, I want to do this now. He's like, cool. Yeah. Five, five minutes later, you're tracking. It's like, it's insane. Yeah, that's awesome. He's, just, he's a wizard on Pro Tools and then he's a wizard at just knowing the, he, does, yeah, he doesn't care what gear he's got near him. He can make... He can make gold out of shit. He's, yeah. He's amazing. That's awesome. But luckily the studio actually has amazing gear as well. So. Yeah. So it was cool having it just around the corner from home. Because otherwise we were going to record in the hills. A studio called Mix Masters in, near Blackwood, which is like Disneyland for music gear. Oh, it's yeah. just like, it's a big place. Like it's, there's a lot of money in that place. And there's just shit everywhere. Cool shit. You know, old school guitars and amps and synths and keyboards. And there's a grand piano and there's like a drum kits and really old guitar amps just fucking awesome yeah but for this this time we had the shit we had our own gear that we wanted to use and we didn't really need all that yeah so we just decided to go around the corner of this joint called Wundenberg's and um had Jackson fly down from Sydney in just two days we did like 10 in the morning till like 4am wow both days go home get like 5 hours sleep come back and do it again and everyone was on the same page just working really hard we got four tracks done that's awesome in two days which is actually really that's a lot yeah yeah normally it's kind of like two days for one song or whatever to do something really thorough yeah but we did really thorough 
four songs. Does he do the mastering and stuff? Or yeah, do you so he's, that away? he just, yeah, the song we just released off my back, that was recorded at that studio. He engineered it there with us. Then he flew home. Then like three weeks later, he uh, mixed it and then um, got his friend in Sydney as well to master it. Yep. Um, and yeah, I'm fucking stoked with it. Yeah, that's sick. Well, uh, do you mind if I open the podcast with that? The With like, a, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds of that? The song? Yeah. Oh, definitely. That'd be great if you could, mm-hmm. yeah, to just to associate things a bit. Yeah. And what was the, sorry, what was the song? Oh, I'll find it when I search through. Yeah, it's just the latest one on there. Skies. What was that one by Skies? Oh, Speed Boy. Speed Boy. Yeah. I'll just play that in the middle one when you said that. Yeah, look that up just to create that context there for that. Um, I was almost going to bring a guitar today and then I got all the way down here and realized I uh, left it in the car. Yeah, that would have been cool. That would have been Mark Maron-esque as well when he gets his, like, the guys to play, play yeah. at the end of the show. Do you have, How much um, like music shit do you have at your house <laughs> laying around? Like amps and... Oh man, shitloads. I don't sell things. Yeah. And I've gotten into like a real... I'm a real like vintage music gear collector. So like... Um, it's a lot different to like sport where... Like, you know, you want some new, fresh, good shit that's going to work. Whereas, yeah. in, for me, in music, I want the old shit that's broken down and yeah. fucked. Yeah, kind of like Jack White, you know. He'll go to, like, an op shop or some pawnbroker and, and buy a shitty guitar and they just love the shit out of it. Yeah. You know, something from the 60s that's just, like, got history and stuff. Yeah, like, and you can, like, you can hear it. Vibe. You can, man. Yeah. It comes across in the sound. That's the big difference is you use an old shitty basketball and it just sucks, but <laughs> you, use an old, you use an old shitty guitar and it's got like a character about it. The brand new ones that come straight out of the factory and they make them, you know, these days they can't use the same, like back in the sixties they were using woods that are like illegal now, yeah. you know, and like the way they made the handmade and yeah. Nowadays, everything's factory built. All the wood's pretty close to identical to other pieces. But back in the day, you could buy like the same model of guitar. You could get like a Fender Stratocaster and you could just happen to get one that's just got like a neck from this, just like a tree that was just like incredible or whatever. And just, and the body, I don't know. It's just sometimes it seemed more, more so back then. Nowadays, they're a lot more consistent, I think. All the guitars are pretty much the same. Yep. So if you buy a Strat of that model of that year, you know, it's going to be the same as every other one. I think back then it was kind of like you could just stumble upon gold. Like, yeah, like the draw sort just of Just every now and then you could just pick up a guitar and just go, fuck. Yeah. Know? So I've got like an old um, Gibson from 1968 and it's got like the original owner's uh, initials actually scratched into the back of the headstock. Oh, wow. Charles Beecham. And um, that's really cool. I bought that online. I saved up like four grand and I was thinking... I'd save it up for a holiday. Yeah. My girlfriend at the time was supposed to save as well and she just couldn't do it. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, I want to like do this. We should go on a holiday or something. She's like, I don't think I can for a while. I was like, and then I saw this guitar pop up online. <laughs> Gift. Yeah. But that, you know, that's, they, they, uh, that's an investment because they get, look after them. They, like that, I bought that guitar for like three and a half grand. I could probably sell it for about six. Oh, wow. Yeah. The old guitars, they, uh, they're pretty sought after. And my amp is like the same year, 1968, mm-hmm. Fender Super Reverb. And yeah, then I've got this little amp that I bought in Melbourne um, before my last tour. I actually take it with me in my carry-on luggage. Yeah. Little amplifier, weighs about five kilos. It's from the 60s. It's called a Rex. It's from like this 
manufacturer in Sydney that was there till the late 60s and they made amps called Golden Tones and all these other ones and it's just like five kilos and I got this I got someone to make a case for it like a soft case out of op shop jeans oh wow <laughs> yeah so it was like a soft case I walk around with this like square op shop jeans <laughs> looking, looking thing but I took it to Europe and the UK and everything so I was just chucking it in carrier luggage everywhere I went yeah every now and then I get a raised eyebrow when it goes through the conveyor belt and they see this like electronic thing. Box, yeah. <laughs> this box that's like got a, you know, they pull it out and go like, what is this? Like it totally looks like a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> that happens with my guitar pedals anyway. I put guitar pedals through, it's just like wires and electronics and like, I always cop that shit. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I love that. So I use two amps at once and then I've got like a, a Gibson Les Paul and a Strat and a Tele and uh, any guitarist that are listening and know what I'm talking about. So if you plug you plug one guitar into two different amps, you're gonna get two different sounds. Yeah. So this that little amp I got. Mm-hmm. The reason I got that is because it's only ten watts and it's got a small speaker. It's like eight inches. Yeah. So if you like crank it, it's like it sounds it's this fuzz like heavy fuzz sort of sound, just naturally. Yeah. So normally you have to get that sound via like an analog or a digital like emulation or like uh-huh. a, a pedal like you know. But this is the reason it's fuzzing out is because you're like cranking the preamp into the speaker and it like it can't handle it it's like freaking out yeah but not to a point where it's going to break or anything but just to a point where it's just over compressing it's just making this extra so you get this like natural gnarly sound and it doesn't you can't get that from like a little foot pedal that's got all this circuit board and wiring and stuff inside it's like it's not the same thing yeah it's like a natural and it's kind of a unique sound. So sort of like I, I kick that in over the top. So I've always got that out next to my big one. Mm-hmm. My big one's on all the time. And then for solos, I kick this other one in over the top. And it's kind of do you know? There's an artist called Gary Clark Jr. Have you heard of him? Maybe. He's like, um, yeah, an American artist who's just like a wicked soul blues kind of guy. But he's got this wicked fuzz tone, and he uses like a semi hollow guitar. And it's kind of like that. But the funny thing is it's coming out of an amp this big, but if you mic it up and put it through a festival sound system, it sounds huge. Like oh, it, okay. so- it sounds like it's a quad box, like a huge amp, 100 watts. Oh, okay. But it's just a 10 watt amp. You can, you can put it in this room and pleasantly l- listen to it without it blowing your ears off. So is it similar to this, like that scratching sound you get from records that you don't get off CDs? Yes, that's, that's a good way of looking at it actually. It's CDs versus records so like not even just the scratching sound but just the general sound of a record yeah you have like those as soon as you put a needle on it you can kind of hear it on the yeah. record before the song before even the song, started yeah. there's like an ambience or a sound it's like a buzz sort yeah, of yeah 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 and that crack, amp, this, amp, this amp does generally have a bit of like a buzz already but there's just that sound is always there when you're playing the record and it also affects the sound of the eq and the dynamics and the the tone of the whole thing it's the same with guitar amps. Yeah, you use something like that versus something digital like an MP3 or a fucking CD. Or yeah, whatever. sounds more organic. Which yeah. earlier you said that's that's what the Wanderer's sound is. Yeah, it's like, what, definitely what I'm going for. Yeah. I just love that shit. Um, which is sometimes a pain in the ass because shit breaks down and you got to get it all sorted out and that. But um, yeah, it's fucking good, man. But I know some guitarists, there's these amps these days called modulating... No, they're like a tone print, it's called. Basically, you get this amp, like a guitar amp. It's like a head. 
and you can actually put a microphone in front of your favorite guitar amp and then like play it for a while uh-huh. and this digital head will like sample the sounds and analyze the data and work out all the frequencies and then supposedly after that everywhere you take this little digital amp it'll you can tune, you can like bring up that preset and it'll sound exactly like the amp that you like oh shit sampled yeah so like that's some black copy. mirror shit yeah it's fucked up <laughs> I don't know how how good they do it I mean because what happens with these it's, they're called tube amps like these old school ones valve amps and they still make them now um, I think a lot of professional guitarists prefer to use valve amps mm-hmm. and basically these little globes in the back of them that kind of power the different parts of the amp so they'll power the preamp and then yeah they've just got different things they'll power the reverb or the trim whatever's on the amp and um yeah they're pretty cool they just because they they get hot and the louder you play it kind of the hotter they get and they actually they create this like breakup yep which is when it starts to sound a bit gnarly so like when you listen to the Ramones and shit um they're not using like distortion pedals and stuff they're just using amps and they're cranking them same with ACDC like Angus Young's sound was just a Marshall amp a guitar straight into a Marshall amp and it was cranking that hard the valves are freaking out they've got it's got a certain amount of watts and you're just pushing it as much as it can through the speakers yeah. so the whole thing's just breaking up it's just going it's like but if you start dialing it back it cleans up you got a really like clean tone which is more like you know, you know like a cleaner sort of jazz sound or whatever Yeah. but as soon as you start freaking it out and the sound of it is so fucking cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> it beats the shit out of any, like, digital modulation. It's pretty gnarly. Yeah. That's the shit I'm into. Because then you can fucking, like, get in front of it and, like, you can... It's got a different attitude. You can, like, dig into your guitar and really get a response. That's why. So if you sampled with that thing, with that tone print amp, if you sampled an amp like that, I still doubt you could get the same response. Like, yeah. you couldn't like dig into your guitar and get more break than you would if you played it light. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. no, there's just some things as hard as you try to replicate um, in any way. It's just not going to, it's just not going to be the same. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in music, people try and they try and... A lot of companies try and make things as convenient as possible, but they often miss the mark, you know? Yeah. But people buy into it, man. People don't realize and they fucking eat that shit up. Yeah. Especially because it's digital, it's hard to realize um, because you're not getting that same sound through like, if I'm, if I'm listening to old, you know, ACDC or whatever, but I'm listening to it through MP3, I'm not getting that sound anyway. So if if someone does a bullshit, um, you know, remake of that, and chucks it on an mp3 it'll sound the same to me because it's digital whereas yeah. if you played both of them to me live i'd be like oh that's acdc that's the real deal and this is you know joe Schmo, and it's bullshit digital trash that you feed me well the best one is to actually get the same record so like a friend of mine he loves doing it. he's obsessed with it actually yeah like, <laughs> i'll go to his house and he's got like He's got a record player and he'll have a record. So he'll have like, say, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. One of the biggest records of all time. And that's probably generally known as one of the best ones to like, to check out how good something is, like the speakers or whatever are. Okay. Because like, it's just such a good sounding record. It's like so dynamic and so wide and so warm and so bizarre. It's fucking, it's a trip, that record. But, um... He'll put it on. He'll be like, okay, I've got it on 180 gram vinyl, which is like a heavier record. 
and then we have it on like 120 gram and you like put them both on and show you the difference yeah and then he'll put it on mp3 and so yeah you you know you're listening to it all through the same set of speakers and you're actually hearing the difference in the quality of the yeah sound. okay and always it's like the 180 gram vinyl always sounds deeper and bigger and thicker yeah and then by the time you get to the mp3 you actually hear how much it's changed and it's been like squashed even more so it's even more compressed it's like thinner it's like got that data sound yeah to it it's yeah, you definitely notice a difference when you when you start a and being it yeah because it like you can see it in in pro tools mm. garage band whatever you use you can see each track is a layer to to the song yeah. or to whatever you're making and yeah that's like what you said squashed that's perfect word for it when you digitalize something you squash everything into one track and you lose you just lose that layer effect yeah. and you can yeah you can definitely hear it but it's, it doesn't it's not as three dimensional anymore yeah it's like you've still got left and right you've still got the panning mm-hmm. but there's like a deeper thing than that it's almost like you can see it up and down like there's like the spectrum it's like a good record you can put on headphones and you can almost point yeah to where the shit is that you're hearing and it's like it's everywhere it's not just left and right it's yeah. fucking everywhere on a, on a really good sounding record with good sounding speakers but even modern stuff is the same even stuff that's done now like if you put on To Pimp a Butterfly Kendrick Lamar mm-hmm. on a on a record and then on an mp3 like you'll still notice the difference yeah absolutely um, but then there's that thing that what is that one that um that streaming platform that Kendrick uh, not Kendrick Jay-Z uh, Kanye and stuff Tidal Tidal that's meant to be really good lossless yeah. Oh, okay. I've only listened to Jay-Z's most recent album on it because you had to. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... Yeah, my friend uses it. He loves it. Yeah. That, that same guy who's like a sound Nazi, he uses, um, he uses Tidal. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he reckons he massively notices the difference between that and Spotify. Oh, okay. Well, if he's a sound Nazi, I'd trust him. Yeah, but I mean, it costs more. Yeah. Um, have you ever had to fire anyone off of a project or out of a band or recently a, recently yeah man in uh, in Wanderers we had a bass player who started the band with us um, he was like it was like three of us me Ben and Matt and then for that whole you know three or four years it was the three of us and then um, things got a bit complicated and then Ben the bass player couldn't come on tour and we went to we went and performed in like Amsterdam and like London and Scotland and Germany. Actually, yeah, that was it. <laughs> it was a cool tour, actually. Yeah. We started in we started in Amsterdam. We played out in this place called Breda in the Netherlands there. And it was like, we didn't know what was going on. This random dude picked us up, drove us out into a forest. Well, like, okay, we're either going to die or, <laughs> or do an awesome gig. Like, just yeah. one of those two things. Yeah. I hope it's the latter. And then we, like, get out of this van and, like, walk around the corner of these bushes. And there's a little amphitheater and just like 10 just super attractive people just like sitting there and they were like the support bands and I say attractive just because it was like it was kind of bizarre how attractive everybody was in this town it's like fucking Netherlands and just like we're just yeah we did this like weird random sort of unplugged gig in this amphitheater in the middle of nowhere in the Netherlands I've never even been there and here we are just like that's the shit I love, man. Just yeah. Like, I've heard that these, about these that These people place came there. out of nowhere and they came to this little amphitheater and they played. And uh, yeah, it's a real kind of university town, Breda. Yeah. It's cool. Um, but yeah, and then we went, we flew, oh, the next day we spent in Amsterdam, which was interesting, of course. 
did the things that you do when you're there. Yes. <laughs> Go to the coffee shops. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they do not sell coffee. <laughs> um, yeah, so and then fire this dude. Yeah, so he couldn't come. And um, I guess like he's he's a bit older and um, he's got you know a bit more life experience and a, with that also comes a little bit more, I guess, hang ups or you know you kind of just don't deal with shit as much. You just kind of yeah I don't know. Being in a band is hard and you can't worry about the small shit. Yeah, you just can't. And that tour, I guess, without him, it was kind of easier, just because. It was fucking hot, and we weren't complaining about it. We were just putting our heads down and doing it. Right. Taking, you know, lugging your shit from train to fucking Airbnbs to venues to, like, upstairs and downstairs and then, like, rocking up at the wrong place and something going wrong. Like, we go to an Airbnb and, like, the hot water system isn't working. And But the guy's been nice enough to supply this, like, plastic bag thing that, like, you can put boiling water in and then it somehow goes through the... Like, it... It's, <laughs> That was that was in uh, that was in Germany. That was fucking weird. But anyway, the point is, it was it was hard. But yeah, we didn't like compl- we just kind of just did it. But I know that if he was there, he a lot of a lot of those situations that we encountered would have been a lot more difficult. And right. We would have heard about them a lot more, and it would have been a lot just a harder tour in general. Yeah. And I guess while I was on that tour, we were all sort of thinking like, this is what we want to do. I love playing overseas, man. Yeah. Going and playing to people in Europe, Europe particularly, is like, it's fucking cool. Like, they're just like, the different culture and the different type of people. They're just so appreciative. Like, you have people rock up, we have people rock up to our gigs wearing like Slayer shirts and, you know, bands that are totally different to us, like super heavy metal stuff. And they're like, hey, like, I don't normally like your sort of music uh, but you guys are really good. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> they watch the whole show and they yeah. still love it and they buy the CDs and they're like, they're not, I feel like here there's a bit more of like a scene thing. People kind of stick to their thing that they mm-hmm. do. Whereas over there, it's just like people Google, well, what's happening in Berlin tonight? I'm going to go to it. And it's like, oh, a band from Australia is playing, you know? Yeah. Any, um, do you remember it was like, I had a mate in year 12 called, and we, the guy in our, in our year called Frenchie. I remember Frenchie. Frenchie, right? Yeah. Tim, yeah, so I, um, when I toured with Skies and we were over in the UK afterwards, like, um, I was like, okay, well, I'm flying home from Berlin in two weeks, but I've got like another week. Like, I don't want to spend two weeks in Berlin, so I'll go somewhere else first. And I like posted about that on Facebook and Tim wrote to me. He said, I'm in Prague. Come to Prague. Yeah. And so I went to Prague and caught up with him like eight years after, like I stayed with him for like a week. Oh, wow. In Prague. That's cool. It's fucking awesome. I love that shit when that... When that yeah, so, and it was just, we were just straight back off to the same... Yeah. Same sort of banter and the same... Yeah, it was funny. He's like a much more worldly guy. Like, since... You know, he's like, what have you been up to? I was like, I don't know, just hanging out in Adelaide. <laughs> yeah. Like, what have you been up to? He's like, lived everywhere in the world. Yeah. Just like, gained so much life experience. He's just done so much cool shit. Heavy stuff. Yeah. And awesome stuff. You know, sort of like, he's done it all. But that was... That was really cool. I guess that's a bit more of an inside conversation for the listeners, but but yeah, just that sort of shit's fun. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, the, the sorry, back to what I was saying. Yeah. To cut you off there. Um, get back from the tour. Decide that I've got a because I need this. You know, I've got a kid now, and I need this music thing to be easy and fun. I don't want to just be 
trying to have difficult conversations and trying to meet in the middle and keep everyone happy all the time. I just decided I wanted to be a bit more kind of authoritative and make more decisions and just like make the band do the things that I want the band to do without, yeah. without trying to, you know, I guess you got to share it with the other guys in the band too and make sure everyone's in on the decision. But like Matt, the drummer is a lot easier to kind of, uh, he's a lot more open to, He's a lot more also hip with what's going on these days too. So like we can kind of, we kind of, we got a finger on the pulse a bit. You know? Yeah. Whereas when you've got someone 10 years older, who kind of doesn't listen to what's going on now and it's a bit harder. So yeah, man, that was hard. It was a hard conversation. Just had to like, I put it off for a few weeks too. You know? yeah. <laughs> it didn't make it any better. No. Nah. It didn't, you know. Band-aid. Like, cause, yeah, he totally knew that. I was sitting on that for a while because I'd seen him. We'd done other gigs together. We did gigs together. We did gigs here in Adelaide all the time outside of Wanderers. And so I'd seen him totally knowing in the back of my head that at some point I'm going to have this conversation with him. And yeah. Yeah. So wait, it hasn't been good, man. It's been fucking rough. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's not taking it well. Oh, really? So. <laughs> um, Understandably. Yeah. But so he wasn't able to come. He couldn't uh, come on to the tour, you. but he, I'm guessing he wanted to though. Um, if he's not yeah, taking to the news he, said, he definitely said he wanted to it was kind of like financially he couldn't really do it yeah um, but we weren't I think it was just that yeah he had some stuff going on back here he had to had to be here for yeah fair enough so like um, you know that wasn't the be or end it was more just the fact that when we did do it without him it just was organic again it, was, it just flowed easy. I guess it's, yeah and that's and it was like that you know with him at the beginning too but yeah people change and things yeah things change and relationships get more difficult especially yeah especially if he's got other shit going on like that's gonna be that yeah could have played a part in him being yeah bringing you know negativity or dwelling on other things sure but yeah it is what it is that's life but you just yeah I just decided I'm just like just positive vibes yeah yeah and just with I want music to be fun so I want to just people that I enjoy to be around and um, just people that stimulate me creatively and you know I mean the problem that uh, he's a fucking genius that guy so like his musicianship is amazing um, yeah he's just like an incredible musician it's like ridiculous he's a freak yeah but yeah at some point it's just like that's not everything so that's you're only on stage for 45 minutes a night yeah yeah that's it and the rest of the time you're in each other's pockets yeah <laughs> That's and that's even like you know tours are longer, generally than what people travel for, and you can get sick of someone after you know a week or two. Yeah. And yeah, having to be with someone, you know, in each other's pockets, sharing rooms, eating, sleeping, breathing next to somebody for an extended period of time. You start to get pissed off about it. It's like having a yeah. girlfriend or whatever. Yes. <laughs> you guys just start to get fucking, if you, if you spend too much time, I think a little bit of time apart is always healthy. Yeah. You need time to breathe. Um, Which is one good thing about touring is like when you, you got your relationships back at home, you can, you have a break for a few weeks. Yeah. You come back home and everyone's happy to see fresh. it. Fresh. Yeah. It's all fresh. I missed you. Although it is hard to, it was last year we started doing more touring than we ever had. And it was also the first year I, I became a father as well. So that was kind of hard. Yeah, that's a lot. You know, like I've got a four month old at home and I'm away for three weeks or whatever. It's just like, but also that I can't, I don't want to stop the train. Yeah. Once yeah. we finally start to get some, uh, some movement and some traction, I don't want to just put the brakes on. So yeah, absolutely. Everyone's understanding. Have you got any crazy tour stories? 
Crazy tour stories. Well, there was that one about Breda. That was cool. Yeah, I don't know. No, mm, no. Nothing got weird in Amsterdam. <laughs> oh, man, we got so stoned. Now, that's <laughs> what I, I don't get. That's, yeah, there's the whole thing about going to Amsterdam and getting stoned. But the environment is the most fucked environment to be baked in. Like that. Have you been there? No, I've never been there. So there's like this bit kind of I guess the most popular part of Amsterdam is these like maybe like two or three canals and this is one block where it's just mayhem there's just people fucking everywhere uh-huh. there's like these dodgy seedy motherfuckers in boats that are going around the canals that are trying to like lure people into their boats and once they get tourists into their boats they'll like just rape their wallets you know they'll like take them around the canal once and then hit them up for like a hundred euros or something oh ridiculous. my god and there's no Liam Neeson to come and save them no, exactly right. <laughs> it it actually is like it's got that thing. Like oh, you, I couldn't. You've got it. Oh, I couldn't. You've got to be. You got to be cautious, or they'll take you for like if you're a. Yeah, I don't there's know. nothing worse the than the, the public when you're high. Like yeah. I can. If you're stoned be- and tripping balls, and then all of a sudden you look around, you're in Amsterdam. <laughs> you're like sitting on the edge of a canal. There's some guy in a boat with a seedy moustache looking up, going, "Hey, come down, you know, <laughs> jump in the boat. I'll take you around." It's like fuck man just fuck off like and then you look at around like all your mates are just as baked because you've bought some joint from some random fucking coffee shop yeah and then like because the coffee shops the cafes sell coffee the coffee shops sell weed yeah that's how it goes and like you buy a joint you fucking blaze it up it's hectic shit like it's you're like the most stoned you've ever been in your life yeah (laughs) and then you're like I'm in fucking Amsterdam you're like sitting on the edge of the canal looking around and so for me this I had this moment where I'm sitting on the edge of the canal the boat thing just happened. That was weird. This guy just wouldn't take no for an answer. And we were like, we just started ignoring him and just like, we're, everyone was really baked. So we we're just quiet and just not even talking. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. This guy was, he was just still sitting underneath our feet, like in a boat. Just, and we're like, all right, man, we, we don't, we're not going to get in your boat. Like, yeah. see ya. Eventually he left and I, I realized that I really needed to piss. And so I don't know the etiquette there if like, it seemed like every place was kind of guarded with a security guy. And I've heard like over there, like if you're going to go into a place um, to like use the facilities or something, you really should be like, you know, buying drinks and hanging out there and stuff. Yeah. But like the places were so bizarre and like all the pubs and that sort of, there was not like a warm place to walk into. And I needed to piss so bad. And I'm like walking up and down the canals to a point where I've lost every, I don't even know where I am geographically to everyone else anymore. Yeah. Because every corner looks the same you know and I like it was just such a mission because I was so baked and it just looked like everybody was like um you know every now and then I look around and I don't know if I was like probably subconsciously racial profiling because of the social environments I've grown up in but every now and then you'd see somebody and be like oh man that guy looks dodgy yeah you know and he's like walking near me and you just like start thinking all that sort of shit probably because you're blazed yeah you know, I just finally go up and ask a bouncer if I could just go in and take a piss and he couldn't even hardly speak English and it's like, he did. I went in there and pissed and even that felt like I walked in and it was just the weirdest place. I don't know, it's just, I guess the story kind of sounds boring but to me in my head it was mayhem. Yeah, oh yeah, well, when you're high, you're just, you're so paranoid anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so then what happened is that our, two of our friends, um, our drummer had his girlfriend there so they went off for a romantic like, gallery sesh they went to the Van Gogh Museum yeah and me and Logan the keyboardist 
we walked around and just did nothing. And we realized afterwards, we're like, man, there was a Banksy museum there at the time. Like that a Banksy exhi- exhibition, like the art- fucking Banksy, the, the musician Banksy. No, the the art, like the street artist. Oh, yep. Okay. So he's like the guy who's just that legend. Like no one knows his name or what he looks like, yep. but he's you know the street artist in the UK who did all these big political sort of messages and stuff. Um, but yeah, there was a Banksy exhibition. There was the Van Gogh. Um, there was just oh, there's um oh, there's so and so's house. I can't remember that. Anyway, there's all this cool shit you can do there. And we just got blazed and didn't do any of it. And Frank? <laughs> and Frank Museum, yeah. right? You know, we could have done any of that. We had money. We were like, it was the start of our tour. We were all good. We were keen to do stuff. But once we got stoned, we just walked around. We just couldn't make any decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just yeah. ended up like lying on the grass. And But one thing that's cool is being able to sit on the side of a canal and just smoke a joint in public and there's people everywhere. Yeah, not be worried about like cops and shit. But then we walked back to that same canal like two hours later, nighttime red light district there's just like women in the windows just everywhere just like you walk down this fucking road you walk for blocks and just the whole way is just women in the windows of Amsterdam wow it's bizarre yeah is there anything is there anything you want to plug I guess it's just yeah just that we've got the latest single off my back yep that was a funny transition. We talked about <laughs> women in the windows. Or well, we won't get too deep into uh, oh, no, prostitution today. <laughs> no, not the greatest topic. But I just mean it was just bizarre. I guess yeah. it's all okay over there or whatever, but it's just... That was the most surreal, I think, Amsterdam. Yeah, it's a different culture. I'd, li- I'd love to go um, at some stage. But once you get out, like, so Breda, where we played, that was two hours out of Amsterdam, and that was a really cool little town. Like, we woke up there the morning after the gig and they had like markets in the town they had this massive like clock in the middle of the town that was kind of their main attraction or whatever okay and just cool shit they got cool food and just cool everything but then Amsterdam was a bit I guess it's more touristy in that bit so I don't really love the touristy places to me Amsterdam was too full on I didn't I didn't love it to be honest yeah um, like it was it was interesting I've done it I don't need to do it again I don't think but yeah but I love the other places like we went to Scotland we go out two hours out of Edinburgh to some random town and play a show and it's just like really cool that's the place that does like the best cashmere like all the oh okay type of material they make kilts out of that's often the the way though um, when you travel you go with these high expectations to like a place like Edinburgh and then it's like okay yeah I get it and then you sort of venture out a little bit and you're like oh this is sick because expectations it's, it's, are lower well, it's, it's unexpected you experience real life so yeah. it's like I feel like if if I go to a place that's been like designed for me to go there you know like a place that like Singapore yes you know, you know that Singapore as soon as you get out of a certain area of Singapore the taxi starts costing five times as much yeah and you just see fucked up shit I did it I went to Singapore and we went let's get the fuck out of the city because I was used to doing that when I traveled. That's yeah. not that's not a good place to do that. Yeah. You get out of the city and it's just not safe. Yeah. Like there was people just trying to lure us down alleyways. There was like prostitution everywhere. There was just like street food. It's like kids on like it was fucked up. I'm like it's not the Singapore that they paint. Yes. The picture of, you know, you go into Singapore, it's like perfect, like clean air, no rubbish. It's amazing. You get out and it's mayhem. Wow. Yeah, it's like like Thailand. Never been there either. 
I haven't been there either, but I've heard. <laughs> I've heard. I'm not that well traveled, man. I know I'm probably coming across like I am, but I'm really not. Like, I've toured. I've toured the UK a couple of times, so I know London reasonably well. But I haven't even been like I haven't been to like Manchester and Leeds, and we haven't been out of London. I've been in yeah. London, and now I've been in Edinburgh and Scotland too. But I haven't gone to Glasgow. But I haven't like spent stacks of time in these places. We've been there for gigs, and we kind of do our work and get out of there. Yeah, so well, if a gigs Germany twice. If- if touring is costing you money, yeah, you, and you're not there for a holiday, you don't you don't want to keep just digging further and further into yeah. the red. So you got to get in and out, I guess. But I've never been to America, and that's like oh wow, that's my big one. So you've spent some time there, obviously. Yeah, five years. That would have been good. Where were you based? Rhode Island. So three hours out of New York, one hour out of Boston. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Awesome. Yeah. College and you were made mostly. We playing college basketball. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Is it like like a like an A grade team or something that you were? Yeah, so we were Division One. Sweet. Yeah, that's pretty big some, over there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. College ball thing. Had some uh, pretty um, big big games against like yeah, just dudes that I'm you know scrolling through Instagram seeing highlights of and shit these days. Like it's crazy. Were you kind of gunning for the NBA? No, I I, I knew I wasn't going NBA. Um, right. But like that was my dream growing up and then sort of like you hit reality at some point so I think I think in high school I still thought of sort of wanted that to happen and then like a year after high school um I was just um the the schools the colleges that were recruiting me I was just like yeah I'm not I'm not cut out for MBA and I was just like, oh, I'm happy to play, you know, professionally at whatever level I can play at, and cool. played at a few, few different levels and enjoyed it. And Sweet. Yeah. Just well, that's good. That's good if you weren't feeling the pressure, like from scouts and all that sort of shit. Yeah, yeah. I think um, if there's people, you know, once it gets hyped behind, you know, off to being pushed to kind of get to that next level. And yeah, I think it allowed me to, like the school that I went to, I knew I wasn't going to go to the NBA from there. Or well, I knew that before I signed there. Like anyway. players just don't get to the NBA from there. It was a like a low major college, so um, yeah, not a lot of exposure there, and like hard to recruit. So you're not getting the the most talented people right. um, there. So it was like, um, yeah, no no pressure. Like I didn't I didn't have to worry about media or anything. So I was I was able to still live like that crazy college life and have fun and be immature and yes yeah that would have been fun over there yeah just be a kid still while while still spring break yeah (laughs) spring break motherfucker (laughs) red cup parties and shit yeah just like was it just like exactly like it is in the fucking teen movies near enough (laughs) near enough with probably less fuckery like (laughs) yeah everybody's getting laid in the movies man yeah yeah no it was um it was cool it was cool but then I went I went back in September so I hadn't been back when I graduated 2014 so I hadn't been back in three years and I went back with um, a friend of mine that I graduated with and um, like it was just so weird like we went back to the school and it was um, homecoming so like all the alumni and stuff went back and I just sort of was like oh well I'm done here like I don't need to go back there again just sort of just close close the book there yeah right so I'll go back to America and do all the touristy stuff next time oh sick because you never got the chance to yeah yeah I really want to get over to Nashville 
yeah in Austin they, know, that would be do, sick do the, do the thing like that's I want to go to Austin I so think, bad I think next year I want to go to this they got South by Southwest mm-hmm. over there yep. I think I definitely want to My our manager was over there this year so I think we're kind of gunning for it. I know she's got some um, good contacts there now we've now we're like we either have just signed or we're signing a sync deal in the US which means the, the music from our first two EPs is it's possibly going to get like synced up to some Netflix shows and like games and that sort oh, of thing oh that's awesome yeah that's that's what I mean like we're sourcing other ways of kind of bringing income into yeah. the band because yeah like just you know obviously royalties doesn't cut the cut the mustard or whatever the fucking saying yeah <laughs> but like um, other things yeah you start to get commercials and like friends of mine got on their song on a BMW ad and they got like 45 grand for you know 20 seconds fuck and that was actually because they were unsigned. If they were a signed band with a major record label, they might have got six figures, you know? Yeah. So, but that's cool. They played the game well. They were like, they didn't want to lose the deal, but they didn't want to undersell themselves either. Yeah. So like that's, anyway, it's not saying that we'd, like if you get 30 seconds on a Netflix show, like I know the guy that does us, um, that's talking to us at the moment, was, he did the music for like Bloodline and NCIS and a whole bunch of shows like that. And, um, he was like ACDC's publisher for 25 years or something so yeah. you know when you hear Thunderstruck on an ad and that sort of thing he might have been the guy who was organising that but he's like split out from his company he's doing his own thing so but that's cool like we're hopefully that'll bring some exposure in the US yeah and we can get over there yeah because South By is supposed to be sick yeah I mean it's another one of those things where like if you get a spot at South By there's every chance you could just be playing to 10 people in in a pub but it's, if you get on a good lineup you put in between some good bands and if you manage to make some like create some hype around your band it's the same with Big Sound in, in Brisbane like if you go up there like the year we were up there that was when Gang Youths first started breaking in yeah. and everyone was like Gang Youths are playing at the zoo tonight like at you know what this time you see the, the band beforehand had like no one there and then Gang used to go to go on and with like a minute before they started the place just filled up yeah. just like boom they just did 40 minutes gone everyone's on to the next venue to see the next hype band yeah you know it's just like it changes every year <laughs> but it's hard to become a hype band <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like an ingredient you don't know what the ingredients are you just gotta yeah anyway get lucky sometimes that's it yeah for sure um all right well thanks for coming yeah i'm happy to be here fucking that was a good that was a good convo good catch know. up uh, yeah <laughs> better than um in between songs at the mosley <laughs> for 40 seconds yeah man. <laughs> i don't think i ever have like enough real conversations of just like genuinely just asking each other about what everyone's doing and that sort of thing you know it's always this a social environment it's like a gig thing or whatever and yeah just, it's just I kind of buzz around the place like a little crazy ADD kid. Yeah. So it's good to just sit and chat for a while. Do you um do you have anything at the Ed anytime soon? Yeah, in Mitchum. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm there on the first Friday and the last Sunday of every month. First Friday this week this Friday. Fuck yeah, I'm there on <laughs> Friday because uh, I'm <laughs> I'm actually house sitting my mum's place starting today. Sick. So right on. um. And she's, yeah, she's right around the corner from there. So I I'll might be there, be there Friday night then. Sick. Go have a look. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And yeah, uh, social media, 
Spotify, anything, what, where can people yeah, find Yeah, so it? like, I think it's like Wanderers AU or Wanderers underscore AU mm-hmm. for Instagram. Um, we're all up on there. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, you know, all the streaming, general yeah. streaming services. You can find us on Facebook, but it's always just Wanderers, not the Wanderers. Wanderers. Just Wanderers, yeah. And um, yeah, we've got an EP called Something for a Distraction. Our latest single is called Off My Back. And uh, yeah, that's the one I'm pretty pumped about at the moment. So cool. check right. it out. Well, everything will be in the description of the episode. Right on. And um, cool. Cheers, right on. But the third time around You might find yourself in the middle of the ocean water with the that fishes and the fish. Oh, I love I love that. That went that's the longest podcast I have I've done with well I think me and Dante, International Heme, might have done a couple like like that sort of length, uh no Bruno. Um when we were you know, we were drinking on the potty uh, in the in the you know first seven episodes, but um, man, uh, that was just so natural, so easy to talk to him, and so interesting. Little bit of inside perspective on um, uh, the music in- industry, uh, radio, uh, and just the yeah the ins and outs. What what the real tour life is like not just the glamorous side but um the dynamic between band members and um you know the shit that can go wrong all that um but hey make sure make sure you guys check out everything that dusty plugged check the episode description um money making mitchell make sure everything's in there and uh man those those songs i love those songs that that um that Dusty was talking about, um, and shit. Uh, make sure you follow uh, everything, everything on uh, SoundCloud or Spotify or whatever. Make sure, make sure you give them some support. Follow their, follow their playlists as well. Follow whatever you can because, um, like we said, the the way. Uh, musicians get compensated now is 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 not really fair but hey you know it is better than the line wire like dusty said so follow um consume the music feel the energy and uh i'm going to be showing up to dusty's gig this friday night and his following gig on monday night to show my support and just to um, get a bit more familiar with his stuff in a, in a live capacity. But man, oh, I'm all G'd up from that interview, man. I can't believe that went for two hours That and it flew by. That shit was easy, man. That was easy. Shit. I'm going to catch you guys on Saturday. Bum, bum. Baby, welcome to Welcome to